This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumeble. And I'm Yannick Mringan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? 2020 Game of the Year. Nice. I think we were both eagerly awaiting this episode, so I'm sure we'll we'll stay calm, but I do know that we are quite excited to record uh, this one this year. Even more than last year, I would say, surprisingly enough. And I'm eager to hear why it is the same for you, too. <laughs> but before we do go into that... We have some follow-up. And I'll start follow-up this week. For the main reason is last week, or excuse me, our last episode was about Google Stadia. And part of what we wanted to discuss in our lengthy episode of Google Stadia was the Stadia Premiere Edition. And funnily enough for me, I received it, I think, 36 hours after we published the last episode, something like that. It was less than that. I think it was literally the day after you got it, and then I got it shortly after that. Right, right. So I, I yeah, I forgot if it was literally the, the Monday morning or uh, the Tuesday, but like literally. So I had a bit of time playing with it, uh, and you'll see why I say a bit of time. So one thing that I wished that we i would have received it on time was really because i really wanted to experience 4k gameplay um the Concrass ultra would have been or even the studio premiere edition would have been my only experience with 4k gameplay uh because i'm still rocking a base ps4 never never really updated to the ps4 pro uh, i'm not a pc gamer either so uh it was that Again, uh, what I end up playing when I received it, so I installed it on my TV. I also tried it wired. So uh, I don't know if the Chromecast Ultra comes with this default adapter, but um, the way you plug it in is still via micro USB. But at the other end of micro USB, like on the brick side of it, on the charger, it also has a U- uh, Ethernet port on this. So since it's the only Comcast Ultra I have, I don't know if it's specific to the Stadia bundle or not, uh, but that was quite nice because it meant I could plug it in and ex- also experience uh, having Stadia wired gameplay uh, for the internet portion of things. Uh, it meant then that Yannick and I played a bit uh, of the... Uh, well, yeah, we were, you were also playing Destiny on Stadia because there's no crossplay. I always forget. Yeah. Uh, so we were enjoying... I don't know when I played if you were also playing with the Premiere Edition. Uh, I was playing with the controller, but I was playing on my iPad, not on Chromecast. Okay. Ultra. Okay. So, yeah. So I was enjoying it on my TV. And let me tell you, 4K gameplay is quite nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised that I say that. But uh, as with, as it being my first experience with 4K, uh, it was jaw-dropping. Um, so luckily for me... Uh, it also does HDR that my LG 2017 TV supports, which I think is HDR10. Um, I plugged in in the input that I needed to go turn on the setting. I don't know why this is a setting on a TV to support uh, HDR10 and Dolby Vision on your input, but it is a setting, so you need to not forget to turn it on. And it was on the input of my previous uh, setup box that I got rid of a while back, so it was not turned on because it didn't support 4K. Or it did, but no channel or support 4K. So after trying to remind myself where to do that, I went through the whole setup, which I think it makes sense for Chromecast Ultra to be through the Google app, but to properly set up this bundle, you need two apps. You need the Chrome, the, the Google Home app to set up 
the Chromecast Ultra to more or less connect it to your Google account, connect it to your local Wi-Fi network through this app. And then when that is done, the Google Home app is like, yeah, to continue to configure your controller, go through the Stadia app. I'm like, <laughs> really? So yeah, so you go through the Stadia app and that's also where uh, the controller more or less gets paired with your Wi-Fi there too. Uh, and the Stadia app, even on iOS, is able to tell, okay, you also, I also see that you have a Chromecast on your home network. Do you want to pair your controller with it and all that fun stuff? Uh, on the controller front, I would say uh, for the limited time I played with it, it's quite nice of a controller. Uh, the form of it, like the shape of it, is a bit different than what I'm used to with um, the DualShock 4. It kind of reminds me of the Ori controller I have for my iOS devices, but again, closer shape to this form than uh, the DualShock, but they're pretty similar. Uh, I would say that people that may be used to Xbox controller might have been used because the joysticks are not positioned the same. So the, the layout is still more kind of... Uh, more based on what you might be used to with uh, a dual shock where the two joysticks are like in the lower part of the device uh, the connection through your wi-fi again that was the last part that was wi-fi when i played through the tv uh, it is surprisingly like low latency uh, to have a controller tucked to wi-fi then you don't doesn't really feel it which that was impressive Combine that for with my experience with 4K HDR uh, with Destiny 2, and it was kind of like jaw drop uh, for the maybe two hours that I played this uh, Destiny that night. I played a multiplayer game with the controller, a uh, PvP game, sorry, uh, of Destiny, and I got above average kills in the game for myself. I got 20 kills in a game, which normally I get about 13 to 14 in a game. Uh, oh, wow. which is really, really good. And I could not tell the input lag at all. In fact, it almost felt more responsive because it was running at 60 instead of 30 on the PS4, which is super impressive. Um, I do have a complaint, though, about the controller, which is on the ergonomic side of things. It gives me the same issue that I have with certain handheld consoles, where if I hold it for a prolonged period of time, I can't feel my hands anymore, so I can't play it for very long. And it seems to be worse if I leave the vibration on, because I find the vibration to be quite strong in this controller. Um, so I, I haven't tried turning off the vibration yet. Maybe that's something that can make it not as bad. But uh, at the end of like that two-hour gaming session that we did together, uh, I basically had to put the controller down because i wasn't feeling my hands anymore which is not great oh yeah that's bad i didn't experience this uh, i know we've been pretty vocal you and i on this uh podcast about the different and ergonomics issues we had with different uh, nl consoles and even controllers and for me surprisingly enough it wasn't too bad uh but without spoiling some of the more details i've been playing some i say quote-unquote fighter games recently uh and yeah like if i play too much and i need to do a lot of button smashing i can get pretty some nice pains i'd say nice but like some pains in my hands even with a dual shock so i would like to see if i play more stadia uh, with this controller which kind of brings me to the conclusion we had about Stadia because uh, after recording it I was thinking about what will happen during this holiday season um, which is totally related to Game of the Year episode because every time we discuss it 
uh, it is more or less for me the start of the new year and this is usually when I have a lot of time to play video games uh, for sure this year is going to be a bit different but usually I have a couple of days where it's around Christmas where I, it's like family dinners and all the fun stuff which this year is cancelled of course but then usually Tony used to work uh, so that we ha- I have time between the holidays so between Christmas and New Year's to like really do nothing at home and just play video games which this year will still happen so at least that's nice um so it is interesting because i was considering to maybe keep my studio pro account for an extra month and then uh, i realized that the main reason i would keep it is to continue to explore destiny uh which, wow yeah 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 and um uh, i was kind of surprised I, I was like you know what i I didn't dislike the game, and that's how I kind of, we kind of conclude the episode. Is I was like, you know what, the game is nice, but uh, I haven't made a full, fully fledged opinion about it, and I think it was good enough for me to continue exploring it. Um, so I was like, if I were to do that, should I do it on Stadia or then or look at it on the PS4? And we kind of had a semi small conversation. Uh, or, in line about this like so off this podcast where he was saying hey you know what if you want to play destiny with me and some of my friends if you want to experience really the the real social aspect of yeah. a game like destiny uh some of my friends are going to play over the holiday season but all of my friends on the ps4 so since crossplay is not enabled yet i think it's later this year that will happen 2021 they changed the timeline before it was specifically september 2021 now it's just vague 2021 but i don't know if that means it's coming sooner or later <laughs> Yeah, I would personally assume later, but okay, yeah, when I meant later this year, I really was thinking about 2021, even if it's still (laughs) December. Uh, That was kind of like the, uh, it really killed my thinking of saying, should I keep Stadio Pro or not? Um, So my one-month trial expired literally two days ago before we record, so we record on on Saturday, so it was on uh, December 17th, and we're 19th on the 19th so that expired so i'm eager maybe to revisit uh see if i think the best way i can describe is i haven't logged in since and i want to see how it will kind of like force me to revisit it i do see that maybe one of the downsides that i would expect is because 4k is part of the the subscription service uh i'll have to leave that aside but i do know that with the Chromecast ultra Plus the controller, I'll be able to get full 1080p and full quality as much as I can for free without uh, like relying on the experience I had on my laptop and its Wi-Fi connection. So I'm eager to see that. But again, I don't know if there's a game that I would like to play with this. Yeah, I, I actually revised my, my stance on Stadia after having used the controller. I am pretty sure that once crossplay hits in Destiny, I'm going to switch to Stadia completely for for destiny 2 yeah because you you let you left last episode saying stadia has the potential to become my destiny platform yeah and the fact that you quite like the controller it really means you just boot up the controller it will especially with the console you boot up the controller it changed the inputs because you know hg no i was about to say hgcp but the, the fancy uh H, hdmi cec yes that was the one i was looking for uh and then you're literally booting up Stadia. Because well, actually, I, I 
didn't even take the Chromecast out of the box. I, I literally only played on Stadium, which is an iOS app that lets you use Stadia on iOS devices. And mm-hmm. I just play it on my iPad. Uh, oh, really? Or I tried on my phone as well, except the screen is a little bit too small mm-hmm. for that to actually like be viable. Uh, which, again, it feels ridiculous for me saying this with like a six-inch phone, but whatever. Uh yeah, Stadium is a fantastic experiment—not uh, experiment, but a fantastic experience. And uh, funnily enough, yesterday uh, they announced that Stadia for iOS via mobile Safari is now in beta, which is literally just using exactly the same thing that Stadium already does, except now it accepts the mobile Safari user agent, which is kind of stupid. Um, but uh, if you're lucky, you're in the pool of people who have uh, Stadia for iOS, and. Uh, Due to App Store and Safari restrictions, right now the only controller you can use with it is the Stadia controller, uh, which uh, is because it doesn't actually go through the uh, the phone's Bluetooth stuff. If you try to make an app like Stadium that actually interfaces with the Bluetooth gamepads thing, you get rejected because it is like you're making an application for cloud streaming, which is against the rules, which is kind of dumb. Uh uh, but yeah, like that—that that is a thing that is coming soon, and I—I just—I love the convenience of just like being in my bed and being like, "Oh, I want to go prepare my build for next week when Good of You comes and plays my game." So I'm gonna boot up Destiny on my iPad, go play for 15 minutes, and set my stuff up, and then I can do something else for a while. And having that flexibility to just have Destiny everywhere is really great for the way that I used to play Destiny, and uh, I appreciate that a lot. That's like, and I'm not really not surprised. I know you were kind of like tiptoeing about this. Uh, the fact that you enjoy the controller makes me like I, I kind of assume that you would end up with that. And it's funny because just before we started to record, I was uh, talking with my brother, and he was asking me a couple of questions about the latest Call of Duty. We mentioned it him a lot because he's my Call of Duty player in, <laughs> in my entourage, and he was asking me a simple question, which was more or less, "A, uh, there's two version of the new COD." Uh, which one should I buy? One, both of them says PS5, PS5 compatible. Um, <laughs> and long story short is the first one is just PS4, but it runs in backward compatibility mode for PS4. The $10 Canadian dollars more is the one that is really cross-platform. Um, That's so weird. <laughs> it is weird, but my main question to him was, do you plan to buy a PS5 in the next year? And he was like, no, but why the next year? And I'm like, Call of Duty release a new game every year, and you yeah. always buy it. So why spend? Yes, it's ten dollars, but why spend the extra money today when you don't plan to buy a PS4 in the next year? Uh, a PS5, excuse me. And that's my kind of like comparison to because then it devolves into like managing all the code and Sully was telling me like oh I think he has Modern Warfare and saw the latest version and it's like 200 gigs on the, on base PS4 still and I was telling him yeah on PS5 is like 250 if I recall correctly yeah uh, the newest one is 250 and mixing that with our current conversation of your you were tired and that will come up later that you're tired to do this management it was so funny that uh my bro was like yeah it, it pisses me off that I always have to manage downloads because now I'm at the point where he's at the point where one terabyte uh, hard drive is full and it's like, oh yeah, I need to get rid of them. That's a fantastic transition because uh, our other friends have started receiving their Stadia bundles in the meantime since we've recorded that episode. 
And they've been having different experiences to ours because, of course, Stadia is always at the whim of the variability of network conditions. And so one of our friends got their Stadia thing. They plugged it into their network. Everything on their network seemed to be perfectly fine. And they were seeing tremendous amounts of lag at 1080p, uh, which is not something that we've experienced at all. And it was basically unplayable. And then he rebooted his network, uh, his router, and everything was fine. And it's like, maybe we're just substituting the frustration of patches and game storage with the frustration of dealing with the unpredictability of network conditions. Yeah, and I'm not sure today if I can tell you, in my opinion, which one is worse. And I I don't know which one is a bigger problem, let's say, over the scale of a year. Because I don't think we're going to be playing Stadia all year. Right. So yeah, it was really funny that in preparation for this episode, we also had like I also have some uh, the same discussion with a family member that is not fully tax savvy, but is really like big into video games, especially for COD, and that I would say more or less like normal gamers also run into these day in and day out because they always want the latest version, and it goes into play. If I were to say, hey, you don't need to buy a new PS5, you just buy this. This is way cheaper. Uh, even cheaper than the price you paid for your PS4 a couple of years back, which he told me recently was like $250. I was like, yeah, if you wait for the PS5 to be this price, you'll wait for a long time. So uh, <laughs> it also helped his buying decision for that. But yeah. And, and for the game in particular, like it would not surprise me if by the time he has a PS5, there's going to be uh, PSN sales and the entire Call of Duty game for PS5 is going to be $10. And you're not going to actually like save any money by buying it now and even at this point like i'm sure i'm sure you won't want to buy those because nobody will be playing those online well I, I, we might have a little a few words about that in the okay. in the honorable mentions so <laughs> good but that was one of these things you said it, it concluded it's like yeah in a year there'll be a new one i'm sure i'll want to buy the new one and most of the people will have bought the new one so i'll buy the new one then and yeah. if it's ps5 only then maybe i'll switch to ps5 yeah, and I I think it's only a it's basically like a PS4 Pro version on PS5. It's not anything super mind blowing. Oh well, the the controller support is fantastic on PS5, but that's right, the which main that thing. would expect on the PS5 version, not on the yeah. PS4 Pro that runs on PS5 Pro, which I was explaining in this. So, so yeah, so sorry, small tangent, but <laughs> I, I felt that it really worked with Stadia, which is more or less game video games on demand, and I think this. Even after our more or less month of experience with Stadia, I think Stadia has nailed like correctly. Mm-hmm. This is video games on demand, yeah. and whether you like the approach that Stadia has done, which is it's your it's a video games on demand a platform, so you need to buy in and not just like pay a subscription fee to get a, a back catalog of games. Uh, that will be its main challenge for the next few years. But the basic idea, video games on demand, I think it's there. I agree. Uh, I have a a few more uh, follow-up items, so I'm going to blitz through them very quickly. Uh, First of all, as I forgot to mention on the Stadia episode, that Stadia was actually being used heavily for primary development this year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I think the biggest example of this is Destiny 2. The entire Destiny 2 dev team has been testing heavily on Stadia this year because they don't have access to their dev dev kits uh, because they're not at the office. Uh, So... Stadia has this entire developer architecture that basically allows them to deploy test builds to the cloud and test on very high spec machines. Uh, And that is, I I think Destiny 2 and probably some Ubisoft games, uh, uh, 
depended on this heavily this year to actually like make sure that the games ship uh, which is an interesting note uh, it's not just for game players it's also for game development that it's useful I'm surprised by that because I do know that those machines and those development kits are usually quite locked down. Uh, but like, if I especially take... for next gen, yeah, and if I take my own experience as an iOS developer, like we all move our iOS devices. I think the the, the main art part was to share, like, I work on a point cell system, so we have a lot of external hardware attached yeah. to the iPad. But an iPad, you can move it with your laptop, which is super easy and super convenient. But I always forget that game developers, even if they have that uh, because of next gen or even because of they have like different PC configs, it may be way harder than we assume it would. Yep. Uh, next up, and I'm not going to go in depth on this because I haven't read the documentation yet, but just to mention, friend of the show, Jay Freeman, also known as Sorik, is suing Apple, uh, joining in on the Epic versus Apple uh, fest, of course. Um, I think Jay's motivations for doing this are much more noble than Epic's, uh, but there is a huge PDF that you can go read, which I have not had the time to do because it's absolute chaos this month, uh, and I have no time to do anything. So uh, we will put it on the back burner, but just be aware that it is happening. Uh, ne next up and related to that, Epic Game Store announced this week that they are now distributing non-game apps, including Spotify. So basically, if you hate Apple, you can go join the Epic Game Store and uh, not be on the App Store. Not that Spotify was on the App Store anyway. Uh, so that is just funny. Uh, and last but not least, we had an episode uh, quite a while ago, I think in 2017, about uh, Apple without Scott Forstall and Steve. And this week it came out that Scott Forstall was one of the two people who worked on the initial version of WordArt in 1990. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Nat Brown for posting the tweet about that. That just made my whole week. Uh, so <laughs> I wanted to share that. Uh, and thanks also to for uh, to Cable Sasser for uh, amplifying that tweet so that more people became aware of it because I think it was a mind blowing fact that no nobody knew. Oh yes, I'll, you know what? I'll remind you this every time you mention. Oh, that would have happened with like, or when you have like some Scott Fortall arguments, like I will be like, don't forget, he coded Warlock. <laughs> it was an intern project. It's not his fault. <laughs> I I know you'll always carry this, but I don't care. I don't care. Uh, fine, we'll get to the main topic. <laughs> so welcome to the third annual Game of the Year episode. Uh, this is one of our favorite episodes to work on every year, uh, but it requires a lot of work, and by work I mean play. Uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to talk about the top games we played this year, but not necessarily games that came out this year, so there are games that are new to us. Uh, I have a personal rule set that I add onto this because I don't like having a recency bias in my stuff. So I'm only considering games that I played between October of 2019 and October of 2020. Uh, this is notable because I came back from Japan on Halloween of 2019 and came with a bunch of PS1 games that were not eligible for last year. Uh, and my list only contains games that I primarily experienced this year. Otherwise, every single year is going to be Gran Turismo 2, Gran Turismo 4, and F0GX, which would suck as a show i'd like to note that for the first year in the last three including this one i will have we'll talk a bit about stadia not too much because we spent two hours and a half last week two weeks ago but uh ignoring stadia i did follow this rule this year oh interesting throughout the year i played 31 games enough to have an opinion about them uh so i rank those in order and we're go go going to be talking about the top four games of the year and some honorable mentions but before we do that whoa, 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 whoa. 31 
Well, Did I, I hear- played. I played maybe 50 games this year, but 31 oh of them goodness. I have opinions about them, yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, I can imagine why you're all excited about this episode. Wow, okay. Let me count quickly. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. That's including my honorable mentions, Varon Ops, the game of the year, plus the rest. So I'm at 15. Cool. Uh, you, what was your year in gaming like this year? Um, quite strange to be honest uh, I started the episode and I mentioned this a bit like I think in the past few years I do have a lot of seasonality in my uh, video gaming experience uh, so fall especially November, Dece- December a bit in January like a bit during the winter too because you know there's nothing to do in winter and I'm not too much of a like, winter sports person so I like to be inside and cozy uh, so it does mean that during this time period, and that's also why in the past few years it was hard for me to follow this rule, mainly because most of my gameplay was in those three to four months, which is our winter, like fall to winter season. Um, what I realized is even if we had COVID this year, which I meant I had way more free time than I used to do in the summer, uh, for the past few months i didn't do too much and i realized maybe the only recency bias i'll mention this and throughout throughout this episode is i realized that since november uh video games is really helping me to like really tune out i i'm super happy like the 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 holiday break is here i'll i don't have to think about work but if there was something easy for me to disconnect from work without having to walk then take the bus and then walk again to be back home video games was really that because usually i would leave my laptop from my office go in the living room boot up a game and then start playing or start watching a couple of videos on youtube and that is really was really useful for uh, my sanity in the past few weeks um so if we go back to the beginning of the year, it started a bit with me exploring uh, NL games. Uh, we had an episode on that, uh, which... Oh, I forgot to take the number. Oh, crap. Gave me a note. That's why. It was uh, episode 135. Yes, I bought Dr. Pe- Dr. Pepper before it was cool, uh, <laughs> where it was Yannick. Oh, no, no. Uh, yes, it was Yannick recommending me yeah. uh, NL games because the episode before we talked about the games that define our taste in video games so it's interesting because i feel this year we did explore a lot of video games content uh on top of that uh yannick has been asking me or like recommending that i uh, join backloggery for years uh and even it w- this was even more intense in the past two years because every year we're like, oh fuck, I need to remember which game I've played and what I think thought about them. And in March, I finally joined. So, um, so in the past few weeks, it was fun because I had to go through my memory card. That's what they called it. It was more or less like the, it's the past 700 games that you've played more or less. Uh, and you were telling me like, because right now it's a mess because I also added a lot of my back catalog, which surprised me that was fun and easy to do with the trophy system on PSN. Uh, because I was like, oh yeah, I played this game on PS3 and I know because of the trophy that I also completed uh, or beaten the game and not completed it. Uh, so it was a lot, a, a lot easier for me to, uh, bring back a back catalog of let's, let's say more or less the 10 last years of my video game experience. Uh, because A, it was mainly on Sony consoles, and B, the trophy system make it easy to just not me 
add them as uh, null is what backloggery more or less says that you don't really recall what you've done but you recall you played this game so and you don't want it to count towards your uh, played versus beaten versus completed stats so this year was really easy to go through it of course my month of march i'll put a link to my uh, profile uh in this the show notes for this episode uh you would see that my memory card is a huge mess in march because i've had a lot of this but the game list was small enough for me to realize like oh yeah i've I've played none of those ps3 games so of course i can skip those and it was really really easy for me in the past two three weeks to just say oh yeah i played this i played that what happened with this and a couple of examples i know that i'll mentioning into uh, my played so far section but outside of my honorable mentions and runner-ups is some games that i literally played an hour or two so I'll I'll mention them this year, but I expect that those might come back later or maybe next year because those are games I've started and that other games replace them throughout the year uh, so that they are a bit on the back burner uh, and then move to that. Yeah, that's pretty much what my 20 games that I didn't rate this year are is just games that I've I've played for like two or three hours and then I'm like, I will come back to this when I have more time or I'm not in the right mindset to play this right now. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of like that. A good example of that that I'll mention today, uh, right now, excuse me, is uh, Luigi Mansion 3 on the Nintendo mm. Switch. Uh, Tony bought it when it launched, or at the beginning of the year, it launched last year in, in, 20, in fall 2019. Um, and uh, I saw him play and I think I've, I think I've played... The way I recall it is I played... That, w- that would be one of the last games that is following the, your rule of playing in like late October, maybe early mm-hmm. November. But I literally played the introduction. Yeah. So I kind of know what happened, what, what's the storyline that starts, but I haven't played too much of the history. And it looks nice. Like, don't get me wrong. it's not. I didn't play it more. It's just because other games came uh, through my pile of games to play and i was like you know what i'm more in the mood to play those other games than that uh, on top of that one feature that i do love on top of just getting a game uh, playing list history is the star rating mm-hmm. uh, i i didn't assume i would use it because i'm usually bad i recall my iPhoto days where it's like you have to rank your photos and I was really bad at it. I really love the feature that's just like, because I just want to see the photos I really enjoy. So that works. Uh, but again, in preparation for this episode, it's easy to say, like, yeah, I recall, you know what, this game, I don't recall too much the story. Let me Google, oh yeah, yeah, this, that, that, that happens, blah, blah, blah. But I recall now why I put it three out of five, because I enjoyed the game. But you know what? In that genre of game, it's not the best one I played. There was there was maybe something, maybe the controls were bad, maybe the storyline was not so great in the end, stuff like that. I don't have notes, but at least having those ranking is kind of like just a small int to my memory to help me prepare this episode. And also like, you know what? If some a friend recommends a game and says, hey, this game is similar to that game that you've played, uh, I can say, okay, yeah, but I didn't really like it. Uh, or it was kind of meh right so it it is easier for me to have those discussions when uh the recommendation and a feature i want to maybe start exploring in the next year is the wish list um i mentioned in past video game episode that i am a video game player that plays triple a games for the last like from that were released a couple of years ago because i always like them to be 
uh, bought uh, cheaply with discounts. With the latest PS Store redesign, they got rid of the wishlist, which was amazing because before you would just put them in your wishlist and every time there's deals, you would go through your wishlist and say, oh, this is like 35%. Ah, you know what? Like I've seen it like at 40. So you would wait, but this is gone. So I need to find a new tool that does that for me so I can quickly go through games I really want to buy or I want to play but not buy at like 80 Canadian dollars. Uh, and I'm not sure if Backloggery's like uh, wishlist system is going to be good for this, but at least uh, it's going to be good enough to not make me forget that this is a game I would like to play. Um, I've seen recently also there's a couple of nice iOS apps that have been shared uh, through the like Apple blogs I follow. So uh, this is something I want to explore mainly because the, the PlayStation Store has removed this feature. So that's the the main section about backloggery, uh, which made mm, I would say not the uh, it didn't improve my entertainment level, but also it, it kind of gave it a different twist. I really like to go like a so one of the games that I won't talk too much is uh, Marvel's Spider Man, which is has been I uh, was playing it in the last month or so, and it was really nice, you know. Even when I recall some of the games that I'll mention today too, I was really nice to go update my progress and like share that on my profile and on my uh, backlog, and then making sure and they also have like nice trophies. So it's it was something really nice for me to improve my video game experience. That was a bit more social. I know I only follow you right now, but but I I'm on black backloggery basically every day, so I would often notice that you would update things and comment on it online. Yes, yes. And I, like, every time I, I don't go on Backloggery, I go look at your list of, like, now playing games. Mm. And, like, again, I, I guess I could use this part of the segment to open it. Like, if you want me to, to share your profile with me, like, I would gladly do so because it is, um, I do feel it's a, a nice way to know what games people are playing in such a way that maybe you're not aware or you're not following like a type of general video games and you was like you know what maybe i should go explore this game go try this game because i know a lot of people that are playing it maybe i will enjoy it even if it's not the type of old games i would enjoy yeah like this year i had a friend who tried playing uh the switch fire emblem and they didn't end up liking it but they knew that i also don't like uh or i don't like the type of design that they're using for uh the switch fire emblem and they knew that i really really like fire emblem echoes which i think was on last year's episode or the year before um so they decided to check it out and they love it and it's like that that's the kind of thing that you can sort of get by like if you find people with similar tastes to yours you can get a good radar for oh well probably i should go check out this game and if you have people with taste that is diametrically opposed to yours you can also have like a similar thing which is like oh this person likes this game so probably i won't like this game which is also useful uh so yeah right that is good so that kind of wraps up my uh quote-unquote side topic about backloggery it's not really about the games i've enjoyed in the past in the past year and all my year has been but i think it has been a transformative part of me enjoying video games this year so i think it was worth mentioning let me go through in some of the games i played and some of quick notes about them but uh, to make it clear those are not honorable mention nor part of the top three it's just more or less a reminder of my playlist uh for the year so um this year 
one type of games that I've quite enjoyed, and that's more recent uh, throughout the summer, is uh, Tropico on iOS. If you may recall, I brought up that, I think it's on our first edition, that I spent a lot of time playing uh, Civilization V on the iPad because this game was recently launched on iPad at that time. And this is throughout my journey to find similar games to Age of Empire, but newer versions and uh, in platforms that I can enjoy. So it's not exactly the same Tropico, more kind of a SimCity equivalent than uh, Age of Empire. Um, But... Uh, this is a game I quite enjoyed uh, on the iOS version. It's not clear if it's kind of. It seems to me, from my understanding, thing was I was. It was hard for me to find concrete information online. Uh, we're currently at Tropico Six uh, on all the other gaming platform, including PC. Uh, so it seems to be kind of a cross of version five and version six. Version five was more like PS3 and previous, like previous previous gen. If uh, I want to be completely exact. Uh, and then uh, Tropico 6 was launched on previous gens so PS4, PC, Xbox Ones. So it was really a nice enjoyment. Again, uh, I liked it, but not exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, uh, while it is kind of real-time, this one is more like kind of simulator-like. Uh, more, I will put it more in the bucket of uh sim city like i mentioned so but it is uh still on my journey to uh find a replacement for uh my beloved rts age of empire 2 uh i have something about that later because uh we've discussed this year how can i enjoy it in how can i enjoy it without getting a pc uh, and we, I want to go revisit some discussion because I would be surprised that it's going to be part of what will happen in the next year. Following what happened last year, uh, so more or less 18 to 19, uh, me slowly but surely getting more into social video gaming. Like we talk about Destiny, part of Stadia. I'm sure that will have a next place in 2021. Uh, but this year, uh, following what I mentioned about Black Ops 4 last year, I've played a bit of Call of Duty Warzone. Again, uh, this goes into me playing video games with my brother uh, remotely. Um, and it is the first foray of Call of Duty into free-to-play games. So you can install it. Uh, I would expect that this game will get updated every year or every couple of months versus... Uh, what Call of Duty is usually doing, where it's just more or less one big game every year, and then to follow the trend, you always need to get to buy the latest game every year, uh, versus buying a free-to-play game that you can buy expansion. From my understanding, is like the Destiny model, which not only Destiny is doing, but it seems that Call of Duty is doing it a bit differently. They want you to buy. I was about to say a, free, a physical game, but a real game that is a bit different every year, even if maybe on the same engine. But they really want you to buy a game, not just a DLC or an expansion every year. Um, so Warzone is their foray into uh, free-to-play. Uh, you can install it on your desktop. Uh, you can install it on P- on PS4. I played it on PS4. And it was nice to just have a game that I somewhat enjoyed. Uh, there are... Um, battle royale mode in it but there's also other normal modes and those other normal like uh, pvp modes are not my forte so i tend to not do it too much 
but that was one of other battle royale games that I did play uh, this year. Speaking of battle royale, I enjoyed quite a lot Super Mario Thirty Five <laughs> this year, uh, and I spent uh, more like that's more like a it got launched uh, late in late summer of this year, and I enjoy it maybe more like September October. Uh, of this year where I would play every couple of days. Uh, it is quite a fun twist on the original Super Mario Bros. Uh, plus a plus a Battle Royale twist on top of it. Uh, I realized that I was not so bad at it in the end. I made it a couple of times at top 10. I nearly made top 5 at some point, which I was pissed because I ended up being number 6. Uh, <laughs> and it is also free because it is uh, part of your Nintendo Switch Online subscription. And one nice game that I quite enjoy uh, this year, uh, part of the free-to-play games that I've played. That was also me, uh, I should say revisiting Battle Royale games, but continue to play some Battle Royale games. Um, lastly, I mentioned it uh, when I was talking about Backloggery. I started the campaign of Luigi Mansion 3, uh, but again, I don't. I haven't played it enough to have a really strong opinion about it. It seems fun, but right now it's just a feeling because I've played literally an hour and a half to two hours of it, like literally the introduction, which uh, even if it's kind of a Mario game, there's a small, I think it's maybe maybe 15, 20 minutes of video like sporadically. So, uh, but at least you get the tone of the story, which kept me curious, but then uh, that was put on the side to revisit some of the games I mentioned later or to go all in into stadia and the recent topics we add about video games lastly two points uh i revisited two games uh one of which is part of episode 138 the gran turismo 7 prologue which was me revisiting gran turismo sport uh, so that took maybe a month of me just like playing it intensively uh and then that died again uh but worth mentioning and last but not least, I also bought Super Mario 3, 3D All-Stars, which meant I started to replay Super Mario 64. Oh, which no. I know Yannick will like, be not happy that I bring it up, but I'm super happy to play it. I think I have uh, captured maybe 25 stars. Uh, you can go on Backloggery. I posted it there. Uh, but it was really fun for me to enjoy a classic game from my childhood. I had uh, N64. That was the game that came with it. Uh, and I'm super happy to play it again. Um, I'll talk about it a bit later. But there's our, there are other games part of this combo. Uh, Interesting. So, so I haven't played any of them. Uh, that's a that's a lie. That's a lie. I've played Super Mario Galaxy, but not through the Switch. I played it originally on the Wii, but I never played uh, Sunshine, uh, and I did not play it yet. Part of the re-release on the Nintendo Switch, and I'm not sure if I'll play it. But um, now that I do have a version I could enjoy, uh, I'm eager to see what I'll do. You should play Sunshine. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. But that wraps it up. Kind of gives you a small, uh, small pictures of what I've enjoyed this year, what I did not enjoy, before we move into moving to the big game of the year dis- dis- discussion. Cool. Uh, 
people who listened to last year's episode probably remember that I was doing something called the Year of PlayStation, which was an intentional decision to play primarily PS1 games for all of 2019, uh, mostly inspired by people being very disappointed in the game lineup that was on the PlayStation Classic, which is kind of a weird uh, reaction, but whatever. Uh, and just to give an idea of how my collection has grown in the last two years, two years ago, I had one PS1 game in my collection, which was Racing Lagoon. And now I have 41 on my shelves. Wow. Uh, so I've gotten a lot of them. I'm basically slowing piecing together, slowly piecing together a collection of PS1 games from two lists combined. It's a list of 77 most memorable PS1 games and the top 30 most sold PS1 games in Japan. Um, now, despite having all of these games, last year's Game of the Year episode was kind of funny because it didn't feature any PS1 games. Mm -hmm. uh, so I decided that for 2020, I was going to stick with the decision to mostly play uh, PS1 games. And I will more than make up for it because my entire top four list are PS1 games this year. Wow. Uh, and unfortunately, due to a number of factors, I wasn't able to import as many games as I would normally. Uh, EMS, which is the postal service from Japan, has been shut down for most of the year to foreign countries. Uh, it opened up for Canada for a while, um, but not all eBay sellers were in the mood to update their stores to uncheck Canada from the expensive shipping tier. So they just like left it like that. And more recently, EMS has shut down again for Canada. So can't really get anything delivered for, uh, by the mail uh, from Japan. And deliveries to my home is tricky. And because I wasn't in the office for much of the year, it just meant that I was not really interested in getting things delivered very much. Uh, so I kind of just gave up on PS1 collecting this year, which is fine because I have, again, 41 games on my shelves and most of them are unbeaten. So I have a, enough of a backlog to have some stuff to gr grind on for a while. I did acquire some uh, domestic PS2 releases throughout the year instead. Uh, what's really interesting is that there are still companies like Atlas and Square, which are actively reprinting PS2 games in 2020. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, like, I got a brand new copy of Shin Megami Tensei Nocturne uh, mm. this year, which is actively being reprinted. And Square is basically reprinting all of the Final Fantasies and Kingdom Hearts games on PS2 indefinitely. Basically, anything that is greatest hits, they are reprinting. Uh, so you can go to their company stores and order them, and they will deliver, and they will be brand new. They have shitty, weak plastic jewel cases compared to the ones that PS2 games had in the good old days. Mm -hmm. But if you can put that aside... Uh, you are getting the actual game and it is shipping. Although what's weird about my copy of Nocturne is it says disc one on the disc that I have, and it's a single disc case. And I didn't understand why, because I was like, did I buy a fake? Did I buy a used copy somehow that was shrink wrapped or whatever? And what I figured out is that they're using the same, uh, the same label art as they did for the initial printing of the game. The second disc was a soundtrack that was only included with the first print of the game, but they never revised the label art to take oh. off disc one of two. So I was like, fuck, I hope I don't get halfway through this 70 hour game and get told switch to disc two and then I can't finish the game. Oh, that would have been bad. Yeah. So uh, thankfully I did some research and I found out I'm safe, but that would have been a really sucky experience. Um, so that's pretty much how uh, my year turned out. I'm going to go into honorable mentions. 
and start off by talking about two games that are ineligible for honorable mentions because they are games that are evergreen, um, but I played them this year and I want to mention it very quickly. Before you go, okay, so there there are good games because I would say, are you starting to use my dishonorable mentions from last year? Well, I've, I've got a list of disappointments at Ooh, the end, but okay. that's, that's different. Uh, so... I beat Gran Turismo 2's simulation mode this year. Uh, I got Gran Turismo 1 and Gran Turismo 2 at the start of the year, back in like late January, I want to say. And I played through all of Gran Turismo 2 simulation mode. It is still fantastic. Uh, I also, mostly out of being bored in quarantine, started a new save of Gran Turismo 4, which is B-spec only, which means I do not directly control the driver, but I control... I give directions to a computer AI driver on how to drive. And this has been an exercise in frustration and patience (laughs) to some degree. Um, But Gran Turismo 4 itself is still a fantastic game. It's just B-Spec maybe isn't the greatest mode to play. Uh, And I think we will probably discuss this on an episode later in 2021 uh, with a couple other gaming-related topics um, because I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on it right now. But yeah, Gran Turismo 4 and Gran Turismo 2, like everything that I remember about them is still good and true in 2020, uh, thankfully. Uh, now into the actual honorable mentions. Gran Turismo 1, uh, the reason this is not higher on my list and it would be much, much higher on my list is because the license difficulty in this game is fucking absurd. Uh, there is a license in this game that I have spent more time on the single license, and I still don't have it, by the way, oh. than Every license in every Gran Turismo game combined. Mm-hmm. And I basically can't do the simulation mode because I can't get my license, which sucks. It's like a B license, too. It's ridiculous how really? stupid this license is. It's like B or A license. It's very early in the game. Uh, and it's a very short game, too, which is why it is particularly punishing. Um, if the license difficulty wasn't this ridiculous... I would actually really recommend this game for people who have a very limited amount of time and who want to enjoy a Gran Turismo game from start to finish. Gran Turismo 1 would be fantastic for this if you could get the licenses. Unfortunately, like I think 90% of the game is getting this fucking license, uh, which is not good. Uh, so, unfortunate, but uh, the arcade mode is very good, though. So, y- you can still play that uh, side of the game if you want to. That's a good point you bring up. I never played GT1, but I do recall from my memories that like five six even the licenses in sport like they felt easier and easier every year i recall playing old ps1 and ps2 versions of gran turismo i forgot which one my memory is failing on this and they were utterly bad because they were so hard and so infuriating but but like i i played gt2 this year gt2 is super easy in comparison to gran turismo 1 <laughs> it's oh, really? like okay yeah like there are a few ones that like it took me maybe like 10 tries to get on gran turismo 2 mm-hmm. but this is like i've spent eight hours or nine hours on like this one license test and i still don't have it right you're not even able to get bronze is my understanding right exactly which is like that that's bullshit and like it's and like i look at the replay and i'm like i don't understand how this is possible <laughs> it's like so yeah gran turismo 1 is fucked up uh next game on the list is iq final for the ps1 this is a japan only release um but uh if you're not aware intelligent cube or kudushi as it's known in uh europe oddly enough the japanese name is in europe that's weird uh 
it's a really cool block destruction puzzle game for PS1 that was huge in Japan, and it uh, the original version of Intelligent Cube was on the PS Classic, so it's seen uh, renewed interest recently. Uh, and IQ Final is sort of the definitive version of this game, and it is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Uh, Jumping Flash 2, it's an interesting ta- tank-based platforming game from the era before Mario 64, uh, so none of the rules about 3D platformers really existed yet. Uh, what's really great about this game is that you can beat it in one setting, which makes it super easy to recommend. Uh, it's pretty fun. It is not a fantastic game, but it is very interesting uh, to play, to see like what were 3D platformers like before Mario 64 and how different would it have been if Mario 64 had never come out. Uh, related recommendation to that is if you would rather have like an action tank shooting game that is based on the same engine to Jumping Flash 2, Ghost in the Shell is also very recommended on PS1. Uh, next game is Ace Combat 2. Uh, what's really great about Ace Combat 2 is, first of all, it's the same good Ace Combat that you can enjoy on PS4 with Ace Combat 7 and all of that stuff. But almost all of the game's missions are playable in 5 to 10 minutes, which make it a really good filler if you have 5 to 10 minutes to give to games in a given day and you just want to play something real quickly. Like Ace Combat 2 is a really nice game that you can slowly uh, make your way through uh, by playing these 5 to 10 minute uh, missions that are extremely well designed. Would you say that uh, with the evolution of graphics from version two till recent console with version seven, how the yeah the evolution of graphic affected the gameplay or did it? I think like uh, PS2 Ace Combat graphics were fantastic. Uh, they, they were some of the best looking PS2 games released on the system up there with like Gran Turismo Four and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Ace Combat on PS1 is particularly. I wouldn't say disappointing, but Ace Combat 2 in particular does not look very good. Uh, Ace Combat 3 is where it starts to pick up and it's really, really nice. And Ace Combat 3 has fantastic music and all of that stuff too. Uh, so I think like if, if you're interested in like having a well-presented Ace Combat game, Ace Combat 3 onwards are very, very good. And I think like they they are probably like what most people remember Ace Combat as ace combat 2 is just the only ps1 one i have access to right now mm-hmm. uh so it's what i'm playing uh but it's still very playable today it's not like a deal breaker that it looks kind of trash <laughs> right uh, which is fair but was not the the twist i was looking for is oh um i'll explain myself a bit better um i feel that sometimes when there's those series that goes from generation to generation uh because game developers that have access to more power, they focus more on graphics and what players feel start to realize is that the gameplay they love to you to play with is getting degraded over time because the focus is a bit less about the gameplay but making it the look the game look great. And that's funny. That's going to come up soon. But okay, yeah. that, and that's why I stopped you there is because I do recall when you talk about Ace Comeback 7 is that you really enjoy the gameplay, the control of it, even if it's, an, a, it's a plain simulator game that you played with a controller and not with real like plain sticks to simulate. Yeah, I, th- I think they had a delusional period during the PS3 era where they made really shitty Ace Combat games. I haven't played them, but that, that is like the reaction that I got from fans. And a lot of people were very happy with Ace Combat because it was sort of like a return to form for the series mm-hmm. um but like for the main numbered entries ace combat 2 to let's say 5 which were the ps1 ones and ps2 uh and then with 7 
they all feel pretty similar in terms of gameplay. So the gameplay is very solid in Ace Combat 2, even if it's a primitive version. In fact, it's kind of impressive because of that, because it's a PS1 game and it still manages to play as well as Ace Combat 7. Nice, nice. Uh, two more games and then a piece of hardware. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Duel Links for iOS. Uh, I bring this up because it is a brilliant execution of mostly real Yu-Gi-Oh! designed for short sessions while standing up in the train. Uh, this uh-huh. is fascinating. If you're really interested in UI design in video games, like this is a game that was designed for people commuting to work, standing up on the train, and want to play a game of real Yu-Gi-Oh!, and they did make very minor changes to the game rules to accommodate this, but it's real Yu-Gi-Oh! And you play it in a portrait on your phone, and it works great. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it if you like Yu-Gi-Oh! or card games, uh, or you are interested in UI design, because it's real interesting. Huh. I'm surprised. It's, it's just, it is one of those picks that you have that always surprise me. It's also a game that I put on my list back in March because I was still going to work. And then I stopped going to work. And then I was like, well, I don't really play this anymore. Uh, going back to what you were talking earlier about um, playing outdated Call of Duty games. This is not Call of Duty, but it's Battlefield. And I'm talking Ooh. about Battlefield 1 on PS4. Uh, this year is really interesting because there has been a ton of player dissatisfaction with the state of Battlefield 5. I have not played Battlefield 5, so I don't understand why they are pissed. Well, I kind of do from watching YouTube videos. Um, but basically what happened is that everyone who hates Battlefield 5 went and played Battlefield 1. And they were like, wow, this game is actually fucking great. Uh, <laughs> and it, it revived the multiplayer lobbies. Uh, so one of my friends recommended this game because he said it was the best Battlefield. And I trust his opinion. And I bought it. And it is super fun to play casually. It looks absolutely gorgeous. And I mentioned this especially because it's also being included for free with the PS5 PlayStation Plus promotion right now. So there are a bunch more PS5 players who are revisiting this uh, with the PS4 Pro patch running in back combat. Uh, so lobbies are once again back filled with players. So if you have an opportunity to check this out while it's still popular, I highly recommend it. It's very fun. That's a good point. I forgot to, uh, to in my thinking process about this is if to go back to your PS5 episode and the current the new gen consoles is I wonder if part of those transitions by keeping back combat and your forward even getting better at forward combat is if it will give a second life to those cloud-based game where they need the server running and people to play the game for it to be like you don't wait 10 minutes for uh, a session to fill in with all the players you need so I'm eager to see where they will evolve like like I mentioned on the PS5 episode they're including Black Ops 3 in that promotion not Black Ops 4 which is the newest Black Ops game so Black Ops is going to be Black Ops Three is going to be seeing ton more players because a bunch of people are going to be playing it, and I don't even think it's optimized for PS4 Pro. I think it's just like go have fun in this old PS4 game, I guess. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, last thing in my honorable mentions, as I mentioned, is not software; it's hardware. Uh, I got a new handheld console this year, and I didn't really mention it on the show. Uh, it was the Game Boy Light. I got a Game Boy Light at the start of the calendar year. I got a really good deal on one that is in great condition. Normally, these go for upwards of $100, and I got it for much less than that. Uh, and the Game Boy Light is a special model of the Game Boy that was only released in Japan in parallel with the Game Boy Color. So you had the choice between the Game Boy Color, which was the Color non-backlit Game Boy, uh, which 
is the one that actually won the war between those two models and the Game Boy Light, which was basically the Game Boy Pocket with a built-in Indiglo-style backlight. And I've always been curious about this thing, and I wanted, since I saw a good deal on it and I knew it was fairly collectible, I was very interested in picking it up. And luckily, the model I got is actually, like, I don't even know what they were thinking selling it at that price, but whatever. Uh, The backlight is rather weak, so it's hard to recommend nowadays for people who want it unless you are particularly picky like me and want to stick to as original hardware as possible uh there are much better alternatives nowadays with ips replacement screens for old game boys that i will link a my life in gaming video about it if you want to do the mod job or hire someone to do it for you but i am a sucker for 90s style indiglo type backlights and i love it to death uh so (laughs) i just wanted to mention it here because unfortunately many of the game boy games that i was hoping to play on it this year need to have their save batteries replaced and i haven't gotten to that yet Uh, so there's no real point in playing a lot of games on this that are going to lose their save as soon as I turn off the device. Uh, so once I've gotten those save batteries replaced, I'm going to be able to play more games on it. Uh, right now, I'm limited to a few things that might make it on next year's list, but uh, the hardware itself, I, I, I love it, even if it's kind of flawed. Yeah, sadly, we haven't seen each other too much this year, uh, but next time we are able to see each other, I really want to see it in person because uh, I Googled it quickly and it reminded me how... I enjoy my Game Boy Color, but that the fact I needed to have uh, like a lights attached to it to play uh, literally everywhere except in daylight was really bad. And there was like those flexible lights that was kind of years. And because you always put them in a backpack, they would get bent and then they wouldn't work because the the, the cable broke. So having a backlight uh, screen, even if it's shitty, w- would have been a game changer at that time, like literally 20 years ago. Especially in like the Pokemon era and all of that stuff. Yep. So. Uh, yeah. My two disappointments on my list that I'm going to very quickly uh, talk about. Uh, I tried playing Kingdom Hearts. That's one of the PSU games that I got this year. I really don't like it. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 1 specifically hmm. because I know Kingdom Hearts 2 plays quite differently, but I haven't tried it yet. Uh, basically, people like praise this because mostly it's a platformer with Square and Disney characters, and I think the platforming is weak in this game. Uh, so I don't really enjoy it as a platformer. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics is my other disappointment. And... This is half disappointment, half backburner. This game is incredibly political. And like, uh, this is uh, like Final Fantasy Tactics Advance and Advance Mm -hmm. 2 are dumb stories about kids who get bullied at school. Like literally that is what the game is. And then coming from that world and playing Final Fantasy Tactics, which is like this most oppressive political bullshit thing in one of the most oppressive political bullshit year we've seen in a really long time. I didn't want to play this game just because it was that heavy handed about its politics that I was like, I can't play this this year. Uh, The game systems, I love what I've played of the game system so far, but I just, I, I mentally cannot handle this game this year. So I'm leaving it on the back burner. And I was sort of disappointed that it was not another like lighthearted school story like uh, FFTA and FFTA 2 are. Are you planning to do somewhat the same uh, with uh, maybe Kingdom Hearts 2 to put it on back burner and revisit it, even if you didn't enjoy uh, the first version? Uh, Well, I don't have Kingdom Hearts 2. Ah, okay. 
So I would have to my buy questions. it first, but yeah. <laughs> but you're not putting it in your list or you're buying this, is my understanding. Uh, Well, it's probably like $10, $15. So if I see it, I'll probably buy it anyway. But like, I, I'm not in a hurry to buy it, mostly because I didn't enjoy KH1. Sounds good. So that's it for my honorable mentions. I'll pass it over to you. Yes. And I'll start with uh, a game that uh, is a mobile game. This huh. is also part of my um, rush to play more NL games uh, with the Vita. And it is a game I forgot I owned. Uh, so <laughs> I always wanted to buy it on iOS because it was released on... It was originally released in 2013, and I'm still teasing it, I know, on PC and macOS and all that fun stuff. And throughout those years, it got releases on a lot of different platforms, iOS, Android, I think even some of the consoles. But in 2018, it got released on the Vita, and the game is Paper, Please. So um, long story short about Paper, Please is you are in somewhat kind of like you are in a fake country that is like really like communists and everything and you are a custom agents and your job is to literally let people get in the country or not and it is a puzzle game because the more the story evolves the more rules are applied to you so if you do the bad thing bad thing happens uh, but it is one of those mobile games I, i'll say mobile games but i don't think it's the best word but those puzzle games where there's a storyline but there's multiple endings and the joy of it for some people is to find all the possible endings and i think overall i think i did three or four i i recall i noted it in my uh progress stats on backloggery and i forgot to look at it today uh but after playing it two or three endings either like not doing great or even completing the storyline i really enjoyed it i see that it's a good game that you can kill uh, time through it but again because I played it here at home really like dedicated uh, I felt that after maybe a week or two of playing it every night it kind of, kind of became boring but because it was part of me enjoying back my Vita um, and I recall even like some of the swipe gesture with the Vita was not so great uh, it was still a fun game to explore Um I wouldn't be surprised that maybe if I see a nice discount or even if I see it uh, when I need to do some uh, commuting at some point next year, who knows, uh, that I would maybe try to install it on my phone because it is a great game to kill some time, maybe you have like 10-15 minutes to kill uh, and then let it there and then continue the storyline or you, you, you go in a branch of the story that it's a dead end so you quote-unquote uh, go game over so you go back and then try to uh, try to fit it because it's like it's a it's a it's a day shift so every day and then the way the save game is done is you see the branches oh you did decide to make this decision so you you can see at date x what you've decided so you can go back and then try to find all the branches so it's inspired by you know which is a game we've talked about a long time ago on a, an episode about Japanese home computers because they invented that concept. Hmm, interesting. The name rings bell, but I'm sure I'll believe what you said about when last time we talked about it because I don't recall it, but the name rings a bell. Next honorable mention, which I'll be honest, um, it was on the line of being a dishonorable 
Uh, we have a whole episode about it. Episode 135. I, that's the one. Oh. Now. No, is that 135? Why I say that? I, okay, excuse me. That's where I mix up my notes. It's 136. So 136 is where it's called Ultimate Swinging Pro, which is the episode where I reviewed Danganronpa Trigger Happy Havoc uh, that got released on the Vita again in 2014, but that was released on the PSP in 2010 in uh, Japan. Uh, And as a big uh, Phoenix Wright fan, it was always a game that was suggested. So first of all, we have a whole episode about this, so I don't want to go into too much detail about it. But in the end, while I somewhat enjoyed the story, it didn't trigger the same thing that Phoenix Wright did to me. And your conclusion to, not your conclusion, but your opinion to that, when I brought that up in this episode, Yannick, was to say, even if you're not sure you want to play the second game, you should play the second game because most people said the first one is good, but when you play the second, that's when it kind of kickstart is this game is amazing. And you're also happy to get uh, the third game and play the third game. So I realized that throughout the, week, the year, uh, throughout the year uh, when I revisited some of my PS Vita lineup, I had one and two that I bought years ago without playing it. And um, on top of this, um, the company that owned that decided to get rid of them on the PSN store. So I bought the Danganronpa 3 uh, on the Vita 2 before it gets disappeared for PSN for prosperity. So at least I'll be able to play them. Uh, But yeah, uh, I was happy to, again, it goes with my, I guess we can call it yearly team, which was play more NL games. I was happy to revisit a classic like Danganronpa for the first time. I should say revisit, but visit a classic that a lot of people was telling me you should play because it would fit you. Um, But in the end, I somewhat enjoyed the game. So uh, it didn't mean that I was also planning to play the second one, which I did not do in the end. So we'll see if in 2021 that will be the year, but I did not. So it's still in the honorable, honorable mention. I still believe that you should listen to others and play those this game. But again, um, maybe play one and two right after each other. Uh, because for me, it was kind of like not what I was looking for and a bit too kind of dating sim even if it's not that. Like it can remind me of the, the parts I dislike a bit of. Uh, personal forward into like your social skills and all that fun stuff uh, that was I think poorly writ- poorly done in that game. Last but not least for honorable mention, uh, there was, was a game that kickstarted uh, some of my playthrough uh, of the year uh, of the last year. So it was Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Uh, I talked in great length about Tomb Raider games, the reboot since 2013. Um, I kind of caught up late to this reboot. Uh, I think I played the the 2013 version in 2015, 2016, uh, but got hooked. So I was super happy when I finished Rays of the Tomb Raider to start Shadow. Uh, and the version I bought, I included all the DLCs, so I also did all the DLCs. And I think, I f- don't recall that there's going to be an, a new game, or they might stop for a while and then kind of not reboot it again, but do. But it's kind of, it was, a, without spoiling it too much, and I think, I won't go into spoilers, mainly because I think it is a game you should revisit. Uh, I think it is 
well played enough that you can, a bit like Uncharted 4, even if it's the last installment of all those games, it is a game that you can enjoy even if you haven't played the other ones. But for sure, to enjoy it greatly, you need to replay all the other ones because they're more or less closing the chapter, if I can say so. Less in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, but uh, compared to Uncharted 4, but still it's kind of like... It felt like the last game of the trilogy. Uh, on top of that, it was like for the uh, for the game aspect, for the controlling aspect of that game, the gameplay. I felt it was always like, it's not a revolution in every game of those. I felt that they had something that they well mastered with the first game, and it was really evolutive every ga- every game uh, since then. So it's more or less same characters that you know. Uh, some of the same characters that you know, mainly uh, Lara Croft uh, and some of her friends, because uh, it is a bit like Uncharted, where there's a couple of friends that are recurring throughout this game. Same evil people, more or less, too, that you need to fight. Uh, and giving you yet another story to enjoy this game, this well-written story game, uh, and a good opportunity to have fun again. And I think also, too, like it... There's a lot of like small side quests outside the campaign that I really enjoyed on top of the DLC. Uh, and it is something I realized in the past few years is in those games that are story heavy, uh, video games makers are starting to, like developers are starting to add extra content. Uh, what are the old DLC? And if you're lazy like me and you wait for it to be cheaper, the deluxe version becomes kind of the standard version. So you get those DLC uh, part of those package. And it is a nice way to say, like, after maybe 30, 35 hours, you're like, oh, yeah, I want more of it. Uh, it might not be as intense as, like, well-executed or, like, like really uh, as deep of a storyline than the real campaign, the main campaign. But it is extra time that you can spend in those games, spend into this universe uh, that makes you enjoy this game for more than, let's say, 30 hours. Because... From my understanding of, the, of things, like a lot of those games, they are like they are at a sweet spot, especially because the story is heavy. That they're like maybe twenty, like the fifty to thirty hours is kind of the sweet spots for those games. So if you want a longer story, I feel people will get bored. Versus if you want a shorter one, you then end up the game is like, yeah, I want to play more, and then there's nothing. So having a, a strong main campaign plus those extra is giving you more energy, and I think Shadow of the Tomb Raider is doing that great. And that wraps up my honorable mention. Again, as you saw in the intro, I don't have that much games to play this year. So if with those honorable mention, we do move quickly to my top three. But before we do that, we'll have to go to the Yenix runner-ups. Uh, I just go straight into number four. <laughs> oh, I okay. I don't have a number four because well, I couldn't. I could say that Shadow of the Tomb Raider is my number four then. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I only have two runoffs. Sorry, I, I, I should have made that, made that clear uh, in the pre-show. <laughs> Oops. So okay. I'll let you do two, uh, four and three then before we go All into right. my number three. That's good. Uh, so my number four game this year is Tales of Fantasia, developed by Wolf Team, published by Namco. It was originally released on the Super Famicom in 1995. It was actually the 25th anniversary of the game this week. Uh, I played the PlayStation version, which was released in 1998, which is based on the engine for Tales of Destiny, and by all accounts, it is the definitive edition of this game. It's also available on GBA, PSP, Japanese cell phones, and previously was available on iOS. 
Uh, it was unreleased in English until 2006 on GBA, uh, which was a bad version. And then it was later released in English on iOS, which was also a bad version and is now unavailable. Uh, so if you're going to play this, I recommend playing the fan translation of the PlayStation version by Fantasian Translations. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Tales of Fantasia is known for being a game with a ridiculous scale for the time. Uh, it is the Super Famicom game with the largest ROM size at 48 megabit, uh, which I believe makes it the only 48 megabit cartridge game on the Super Famicom. And the reason for this is because it has this thing called flexible voice drive technology, which means there is voice acting in this game. It is limited, but it is there. Uh, certain battle sequences have voice clips when you do special attacks certain story cutscenes have voice acting and it has a vocal opening theme which is two and a half minutes long which again for a super famicom game kind of insane hmm. uh this also made it kind of hard to fan translate the super famicom uh version because at the time there were no flashcards that could actually handle playing a game that was that big to begin with and then if you were trying to translate it the size of the game would grow even more and then it was just basically impossible uh so it was untranslated for a very very long time and of course because they have all of the storage space there is a ton of throwaway one-off animations all over the place and this game because it has all of these one-off animations and gimmicks all over the place it gives this game so much charm and personality that other uh 16-bit rpgs fail to match with uh and i think this is particularly interesting in a year where we had games a triple games like the last of us 2 and uh cyberpunk 2077 to some degree which are just known for their high level of environmental detail, maybe even too much level of environmental detail to the point that they are burning out the people who work on it. Uh, Tales of Fantasia is sort of in the similar idea, but imagine that on a Super Famicom game, which is really not what you would think of. Uh, but th this game is gorgeous, and there is so much... There are little touches all over the place that will delight you. And I think that is the thing that is very important in video games. Uh, Tales of Fantasia was the first entry in the Tale series. Uh, so if you're not familiar, the Tale series is a series of RPGs. And one of their main defining features is something called the linear motion battle system. So instead of having a turn-based battle system like many other RPGs, like FF7 we've mentioned on the show before and other uh, Dragon Quest-y type RPGs, uh, battles in this game and in this series in general play more like a fighting game or a side-scrolling brawler. So you get taken into a different mode of the game uh, where you see your characters on the side-scrolling plane and you can move back and forth and attack them uh, with various moves, whether they be special moves that you uh, initiate or just like basic attacks that don't require any uh, MP. What's sort of different about Fantasia in that respect is that because it was the first one, uh, they didn't actually know how to design this in a way that was approachable to RPG players. So for the first part of the game, you're stuck in a semi-automatic mode. And unfortunately, that means that there is more messing around in menus than you would think. And it feels clunky and repetitive to do combat with trash mob enemies that have way too much health. Uh, so Unfortunately, combat in this game, at least for the first part of the game, it kind of sucks, which is not a great thing to say for a game that is known for its battle system. 
but it redeems itself later in the game because you get an item that takes you out of that semi-automatic mode and it basically turns you into a Street Fighter character and you can just start using special motions and do cool attacks without having to mess with the semi-automatic mode fucking up your movement and you slowing down your battles. Uh, so at least it gets better later in the game. But that is the unfortunate part of this game. It's also probably the most polished Tales game that I've seen, which what? sounds ridiculous because it's the first one again. Um, I don't really know how to explain this other than you feel the budget more in future Tales games. Uh, you can tell that the other Tales games are strictly bound to a specific budget. And you can tell where the budget was allocated. And surprise, it wasn't allocated at the game, going to what you were saying earlier about Ace Combat, uh, which is funny because this is another Namco game. So especially in like PS2 GameCube era when it got easier to do this, but they did this on PlayStation as well. Uh, a lot of the budget goes towards commissioning popular anime studios to draw animated cutscenes and paying the voice actors for the voice acting. And it feels like way too much of the budget is going into making this interactive anime game more so than making the awesome RPG that Fantasia was. And it feels like the game design has stagnated in the PS2 GameCube era. And I I don't necessarily think that's the, the bad decision. Like if you look at the fans of this game, like a lot of the fans of this game love the characters more than they love the game itself. And I think like maybe it's a good bet for those fans to actually put the effort towards animating those cutscenes and the voice acting more so than focusing on the game if that's not what they value out of the game. But for me particularly, I would rather see them invest in making the game good uh, and evolve the gameplay since the PS2 and GameCube era and not just keep pumping out basically the same game except with different cutscenes each time. It's funny that you mentioned that. Sorry for the interruption, but I'm looking quickly at the uh, list of Tales of, because I recall watching Friends, you know, if we go back to me talking about Final Fantasy X, uh, some of the Tale games around the same era was also me watching some Friends. And uh, the one I recall maybe playing, watching for sure, is Tales of Zamphonia on the uh, GameCube. Uh, and... Um, Tales of Legendia. I think, I, and this one is on PS2. And I think I've played it, and I recall at that time that what was "quote unquote" nice about those games is the investment people add with the characters, and yep. less about the game itself. Um, so it's funny that you mentioned that because I recall this moment where like people were really invested in all those characters and less about what what made the game nice. Tales of Symphonia is really the one that took off in the West, and I think it's the one people remember the most. It was also, like, really hard to find a GameCube copy at the time, I remember. I had a friend who had it, and he was, like, this legend at school because he was the only person who had a copy of Tales of Symphonia. Like, it was really, <laughs> it was kind of a weird thing. Uh, but, yeah, I feel like, basically, the game stopped evolving, stopped evolving after Tales of Symphonia, and they were basically just, like, reallocating the budget towards anime and voice acting. And I think it's... I have no interest in modern Tales games, really. Uh, I would probably enjoy a couple of the ones between uh, PS1 and PS2 era. But, like, I, I've i played uh, demos of other PS1 versions, and they don't feel as good as this remake of Fantasia. And I just don't get it. Why, why was this one the good one? It's so weird. Um, like a lot of other uh, Super Nintendo and PlayStation era RPGs, this is 
a time travel RPG. Uh, so to give a brief uh, overview of the story, the opening cutscene of the game shows four heroes fighting a sorcerer king called Daos. Uh, and on the on his verge of defeat, he uses a magic spell to tra- time travel into the future to avoid getting killed. Uh, but on the other side, there are already one of the hero's de- descendants and three other characters waiting for him, and they seal him away with two magic pendants. So you got owned, dude. Uh, but then tw- <laughs> 12 years after that, you awake as Cress, which is the main character, uh, who happens to own one of these pendants. And he's out playing with his friend or whatever, and he comes back to the village, and your family's been killed, and the entire village has been destroyed. Uh, so, helpless, you go to your uncle, to find, but then you find out that he betrays you, and he's working for the Dark Knight who destroyed the village and seals your pendant. As you try to escape the jail that your uncle locks you into, you find out the same thing happened to a young priestess named Mint, who owned the other uh, pendant. So, Dallas is released into the world again, and then one of the elders, which was one of the heroes from the opening cutscene, says that there's no force that exists in this time time frame that can defeat Daos. So you're sent 100 years into the past to try and stop Daos all over again. And uh, that is basically like the first hour and a half to two hours of, this, of the gameplay. Uh, and it's just beautifully done. It's really well done. Um in recent years, a lot of us in the retro gaming scene have become cheerleaders for previously unlocalized 90s RPGs. Uh, for example, one of the people I played Destiny with uh, is super passionate about romancing saga games, which are not games that we had in the West until 2016. Uh, these games were released in 1993 on Super Famicom. We got <clears throat> we got a PlayStation Vita version in 2016 uh, that basically localized them in English for the very first time. And he loves Romancing Saga 2 and 3 and says, like, if these games had been released on the Super Nintendo when we were uh, alive in the 90s, these games would be classics if they had come out in English at the time. And I feel exactly the same way about Tales of Fantasia. I think this is my this is my cheerleading game. Is This RPG is so well done that people would have such good memories of this game if it had come out at the time. But now it's like we only got shitty versions of this game released in English, which really sucks. So uh, you have to rely on people like me who are cheerleaders for this game to actually convince you to go check out the fan translation of the PlayStation version to experience this because it's fantastic. So that is my number four. Now we get to the number three. And I did say on the last episode there was going to be a Naughty Dog game on this list. That's true. It's true. Uh, you, you can probably guess since it's a PS1 game that it's not going to be any of the ones that she likes. <laughs> it's Crash Bandicoot 2, Cortex Ooh. Strikes Back. Uh, it's developed by Naughty Dog, published by Sony Computer Entertainment, and originally released on the PlayStation in 1997. However, uh, strangely enough, for this, uh, f- for this Game of the Year episode, I played the remaster as part of the PS4 Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy compilation. Uh, so I guess it's technically a PS4 game that I played. Uh, and this is where I get to my first opportunity to bash on Super Mario 64. Uh, of course. Because, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me quit the podcast. this is one of two 3D platformers I'm going to be talking about on this episode. Uh, so Crash's main competition in the PS1 days was Super Mario 64. And Super Mario 64, uh, I've... Th- Trash talked Super Mario 64 a lot this year, so I, I'm more experienced in it now. Oh, uh, no, oh, no. It's a sandbox platformer, which is very a different kind of platformer to what we saw in 2D systems, which were linear platformers. Uh, linear platformers are 
a string together series of platforming challenges in a very specifically designed difficulty cadence that you need to make your way across to a goal at the end of the level. Sandbox platformers are very different because they prioritize exploration and item collection, and they give you a wide variety of traversal options that ex encourages experimentation. But linear platformers can be difficult to design in 3D unless you specifically constrain players' freedom of movement. Uh, this is kind of also an issue in Super Mario 64 to some degree. Like obstacles or enemies rather are not a challenge if you can walk around them. And that's why like in Super Mario 64, if you take like the very first level, like there's all of these bombs walking all over the place. At no point in the level do I actually ever feel threatened by any of those bombs because I can just walk around them and they don't feel like an actual problem like they do in a 2D game. And I think that's why they make you make them purchase uh like run at you if you go close to them to kind of like bring back this feeling it, it tries to give you a level of urgency but in in most cases i feel like it fails yeah because you um, can just run that, that that i would agree with you though and, and like that that's not a style of gameplay that i'm particularly a fan of uh crash games like one of the complaints that i've seen and I, i even the developers have addressed this to a certain degree is uh, i think that like one of the code names for this game when it was originally being developed was called sonic's ass because it's basically a sonic game that is developed except the camera is changed to be behind the character so you just see their butt the whole game uh And th that's kind of what Crash is, is they actually do decide to constrain the player's freedom of movement. So the fact that it is a 3D game doesn't actually matter that much for much of the game. Um, I talk a lot about Super Mario 3D Land as being one of the uh, the good 3D Mario games uh, because it's a 3D linear take on Super Mario Bros. 3. It's trying to do linear gameplay in 3D and it models itself on Super Mario Bros. 3. Well, The Crash Bandicoot trilogy, the original trilogy, is a 3D linear take on Donkey Kong Country, which is not obvious unless you actually like pay attention to the gameplay. And then you're like, oh, this has the same rhythmic musical platforming elements that Donkey Kong Country has on the Super Nintendo, except explored in a 3D space. Now I need to talk a little bit about like why Crash 2 and not Crash 1 or Crash 3. Um... And I played much of the Insane Trilogy back when I moved because it was one of the few PS4 games I had at the time that didn't require an internet connection to be played. That was when I realized I basically only played from multiplayer games on the PS4. Uh, so Crash 1 was a hard platformer to begin with on PS1, but the remaster version has additional issues. And the reason for this is that all three games in the uh, Crash Insane Trilogy are uniform physics, whereas they were not on the PS1. Uh, they took the hitboxes and the physics of Crash 2, and they patched them into Crash 1 and Crash 3. Uh, and the reason they did this is because Crash 2 is widely agreed to have the best-feeling physics in the entire trilogy. The problem is the stages were never adjusted to correct for these changes in hitboxes and physics, and that means that there were punishing obstacles that were very hard to deal with in the original games that are even harder to deal with with the new physics and the new hitboxes. Uh, and Crash 1 is particularly bad at this. Uh, so I found it too difficult and frustrating to play to actually be fun to play. It, it has good ideas, and it's probably better on the original PS1 than it is in the trilogy, uh, but I just lost interest. 
Crash 3, on the other hand, uh, was much more polished than Crash 1. Uh, the levels in this game are a massive technical achievement for what the PS1 was able to do. Um, and there was so much complex geometry for a PS1 game, and it somehow managed to run great on the hardware, which is baffling. But if you actually go look into uh, what developers have said about this, they developed a ton of custom technology for all of these Crash games to actually make it work in practice on the PS1. Um and what was interesting about this game was that the physics did not feel as punishing as they did in Crash 1, and that's because Crash 3's physics are generally much closer to Crash 2's physics. Um, but the problem is, I don't know what the hell they were thinking, uh, but the people at Naughty Dog have like this fetish for frustrating auto-scroller gimmick stages, uh, like basically the stages that gave us Crash Team Racing, which Crash Team Racing itself is a very good game, but all of the stages that were like... We're trying to break up the monotony of just platforming with mini game stages. They're very bad, and there are a lot of them in Crash Three, and it sucked. Uh, and I, they felt like roadblocks more than anything else. That was my experience with Crash One and Crash Three, and I was like, "Hmm, Crash Two can't possibly be the good one in these, right?" Uh, so I waited really long to play it, and this year was the year that I actually decided to play Crash Two, and it turns out it's really fucking good. Uh, it's my favorite in the trilogy. Uh, the difficulty is much more balanced than the other two titles in the series. Uh, part of this is because it's actually running with the physics it was designed for, duh. Uh, part of this is also just because they actually tuned the difficulty better. Uh, so the first two-thirds of the game are just much easier than any of the Crash 1 and Crash 3 first two-thirds of the game. And then there's a sharp difficulty spike for the last third of the game, but... I think it's fine. I think it's it's a reasonable difficulty spike for the last third of the game. Uh, and it gives it... It would be way too easy of a game if they just kept the same uh, difficulty cadence. Uh, there are still auto-scroller stages, but they are much more forgiving. And they feel like what the developers actually intended these stages to be. They are rewarding you with more varied gameplay between stages instead of just like pissing you off with a roadblock uh, for the hell of it. Uh, so the minigame stages are very well executed in this game, and they are more forgiving, and they just feel like rewards instead of kicking you in the face. Um, and all of this makes it sound like I like Crash 2 because it's easier than the other two, but I don't really think that's it. I think that the distinction here is in Crash 1 and Crash 3, I feel like I'm dying for unfair reasons. In Crash 2, I feel like all of my deaths are my fault, and that if I just get better at the game, I'm going to have much less difficulty dying. Um, so if you're looking for a linear style platformer, Crash 2 is fantastic. I really love it. And I highly recommend it to fans of such platformers. Uh, but don't expect Super Mario 64 because it's a completely different kind of game to Super Mario 64. Okay, now what's your number three? Uh, before I go on my number three, there is... I wouldn't say it's a reason for you to play Uncharted 4, but there's a nice uh, moment in it, in the opening uh, moment. Yes, I, I, I'm familiar with the scene. Are you familiar with it? Where yeah. uh, Nathan and his wife, Elena, would play... Uh, I forgot which one, but it it's is... Crash 1. It is Crash 1, right. So they literally... They are shown getting a PS1 out of their living room setup and literally playing uh, Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> and you need to play because the, the that part of the story is literally Elena, your wife, is really good at that game and you as Nathan suck badly. 
and there's a nice moment of them just playing and it's a nice kind of moment from Naughty Dog to say hey you know we made this game and we have our characters in our new game playing that old game of us made by us so it made me laugh even if I kind of never really played uh, Crash Bandicoot uh, because again they were on PS1 and I was not a PS1 player I was on N64 that time uh, and uh, then revisit them when I got a PS2 okay my number three this one i'll taint the other two uh so my number two and game of the year uh for once i broke my rule and most of the games we'll be discussing in this top three are from this year and this is the exception um I brought up already episode 135 where i asked yannick to challenge me and give me a list of games i would like to play on my nl consoles which are the 3DS, and related to the 3DS, and the Vita. And this was the, one of the games that Yannick brought up in the episode that when the description was, like when he described it to me, I was really, really curious about it. And there was a small journey trying to find it throughout our <laughs> pandemic, and also because it's a rare game, but it is by developed and published by Konami, and it is Time Allo. So it was released in Japan in 2007 and rest of the world for so NA and uh, EU in 2008. And the idea of Time Hollow is, remember earlier I was talking about Danganronpa and I wanted to get back this feeling that I got uh, with Phoenix Wright, which is more or less, the stories are nice in Phoenix Wright. I really enjoy the stories. And there's key moments in each of the chapters where you're like, Oh my god, I'm crushing my uh, like the for Phoenix right. It was I'm crushing my adversary uh, during the court sections, um, and I felt that that was a bit missing in Dengarampa. I felt that where you had the student court, there was nice moment, but not as punchy as they were in the uh, first few uh, Phoenix game, Phoenix Wright games. If you bring that back with Time Allo, which is a bit different, so more or less is you're a kid called Ethan and your parent disappears and you're only left with one thing, which is called the Allo Pen, that allows you to relive moments in the past or see flashbacks. Even if you, it is not flashback from your own memories, but it's flashbacks from a specific location. And the idea is you need to figure out why your parent disappears um, and you need to more or less do uh, an adventurous kind of detective adventure game so it's more focused on what you would experience in the detective section of a phoenix red game but i think it is well executed um it's a game i didn't know from the ds uh it's part of the lineup of the ds like which is quite extensive uh, i think it also had a limited run for this game it was not really popular but uh, i really enjoyed it uh, because the uh, the detective aspect and the, the small nugget of story you get throughout those elements part of the story is really making you addicted to it. Uh, it is really a like a like short story because if you look at how long to beat, for example, I beat it in more or less eight hours. Uh, the way I recall it, it was literally intensive eight hours because I didn't like let my DS. Uh, down to not play it but even if it was 
a expensive and hard to find. I think I've ended up paying like what 55, 56 Canadian dollars to get it. Uh, I really don't regret it. Uh, funny twist is after the game, you do end up having a game plus, and I've uh, see it through a, a game fact, and it's literally a shortcut, that, a shortcut that allows you to beat the game. And I, I brought it up quickly on past episode, but it's a shortcut that lets you beat the game from start to finish in 15 minutes. Because literally, part of this kind of like sport alert, but part of this uh, this time system, there's a way to see who's doing like who's the evil character in it at the beginning of the game, and Wow. When you first play it, you know something weird happened, but it's not into that you. But there's a choice that if you would have done differently, would let you find who's the evil character and also be kind of like, poof, yeah, at the end of the game. Uh, because it's kind of those kind of uh, time linear continuum thingy where like if that happened, it means that that universe doesn't really exist no more. So yeah, that's why yeah. the game is completed in 15 minutes because you know what? you killed the reason the raison d'être of that game to exist by just saying no to a yes and no question more or less or oh i heard a, uh, i think it's like oh i heard a sound outside should i go or do something else and then if you go let me go see poof the game is killed <laughs> which is super funny uh but overall i think and i feel that that part is a bit harder with phoenix run games because yes there are chapters so you could replay the chapters but you could think that time hollow is maybe one or two chapter that is a full game so it makes it quite easy to replay and re-enjoy the gameplay uh and i think it's a good like it is a good game good 3ds game that is taking advantage of ds things only the touchscreen uh, it mm. is not as gimmicky as some of the Phoenix Rain where you, like, you can select objection using the microphone, but it is making good use of the fact that one of your screens that you have is a touchscreen. So overall, if you're able to find a copy of it, I was lucky to find a copy in Canada, uh, which also explained why it was even a bit more expensive. Uh, but really, uh, I was really happy to enjoy uh, a DS game in 2020 so it was literally a 15 year old game and that was kind of give me the itch to uh, i haven't done it too much but the reason it is in my top three is i guess some of the reasons why yannick is doing his year of ps1 is to revisit those games that i had consoles even at that time but i was not aware and and maybe was less aware of uh what other people will think and today it could be a good opportunity to revisit Related to that, some of the games mentioned in this episode where Yannick mentioned some games, I still have them in my eBay alerts. So I'm still like <laughs> receiving alerts and it's like, oh, you know what? I don't want to pay like maybe $40, $50 for this game. But I have some of them. Some of them I'm just like, you know what? Like you explain them to me. I read it on the internet and I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to buy it, even if it's cheap. But there are other games, and I think the one I still received an alert recently is Trace Memory, which is similar mm. to that. But as I mentioned in this episode, like I recall when I was 15, 6, 15, 13, when I got my DS, uh, that I really wanted to buy this game. I was like, this is a game that I would have played, but never really bought it. So it was a fun, uh, a fun moment when you brought this up. So last but not least, I was gladly surprised by Tamalo, even if it was... 8 to 10 hours, I think you can completely do the game. 
uh, but a fun discovery for me in 2020 that was completely out of my typical video games lineup of games I would play. Sweet. Time for my number two? Yes. All right. My number two is Dragon Quest IV, which was uh, technically released in 1990 on the Famicom, developed by Chunsoft, published by Enix. It was released on the Nintendo Entertainment System in English in 1992. Uh, I played the PS1 remake, of course, which was developed by Heartbeat and released only in Japan in 2001. Uh, But that remake was used as the basis for a DS version, which was released in 2007 and released internationally, which is the version listeners should play if they want to play this game. Uh, Dragon Quest is the most popular RPG series in Japan with Final Fantasy in second place whereas they're kind of flipped here in North America and Dragon Quest is basically the first JRPG Uh, it was so influential that oftentimes things that we really enjoy about other JRPGs are actually homages to other uh, Dragon Quest games like uh, the entire world of uh, Pokemon Red, Green, and Blue being in uh, Pokemon Gold and Silver, like that's an homage to Dragon Quest II, which did the same thing for Dragon Quest I. Uh, and there are a bunch of other things like that that are recurring mechanics in video games that are basically just because Dragon Quest wrote the rule book of JRPGs. Uh, it's one of the few games in Japan with incredible mass market reach, and whenever a new Dragon Quest has come out, everybody is playing it and everybody is talking about it. Whether you are a salary man who is 70 years old or you are uh, a young kid, uh, it's one of those games kind of like Monster Hunter and it's PSP Golden Age that uh, is evergreen and it never stopped being popular. Um and I think, like, one of the ways that people really like to play Dragon Quest games is as a ritual where you play it for a half hour before bed every night, like a bedtime story. Uh, it works really well for that. Dragon Quest IV is a 27-hour RPG, which is very, which is on the shorter end of Dragon Quest titles, if you exclude Dragon Quest One, which was, I think, eight hours max, which is, like, an anomaly for the series. Uh, more recent games are much longer than that. Uh, And what I find really interesting about this game is it's broken up into five chapters, and in the PS1 and DS version, there is a post-game section as well. The first four chapters each play like a different mini Dragon Quest game with their own self-contained story arc uh, centered around a specific cast of characters for that chapter. Um, And as you play through more of the game, you start picking up clues and ideas of how these individual stories might be part of a greater story, because they share the same world, they're just isolated stories on their own and then the fifth chapter naturally ties together all of these characters from the four previous chapters and uh basically elevates what was hiding behind all of those stories and at the end brings closure to everybody's story so what i really really like about this game is that the chapter structure and the self-contained arcs really helps with the problem that we've mentioned a lot on the show which is long rpg disorientation when you stop playing in the middle of it and you come back and you have no idea what the fuck you were doing and you're like i'm just going to restart this game and then you never play the game again because you don't want to do that uh it is really nice to have defined start and stop points for when you should stop playing the game save the game and come back three months later and resume from a place that is safe you have those clean cutoff points in dragon quest 4 and that is great Uh, It also really helps that the first four chapters are one of the best executed tutorial sequences in a game ever. Uh, There is never any explicit tutorial text. You learn everything through playing the game. 
uh, each character in the game that you meet is a different character class. And by the time you reach the fifth chapter, you've met every character and therefore have experience playing with every character class in the game. By playing through those chapters, your skills have been tested in situations that would be challenging for certain types of parties, and you made it through. So now the gameplay sort of shifts, and you have this full cast of characters of all of the characters from the previous chapters to choose from, and it becomes sort of a puzzle-solving game where you are put into a situation and you have to assemble the correct party composition for that situation, and it's really interesting to have that kind of thing. Uh, it's also really cute. The first two chapters are like miniature versions of the first two Dragon Quest games. They're like, they're an homage to themselves, uh, which is really cute. Um, so two years ago, I played through Dragon Quest V, which is often referred to as being the fan favorite in the series. And I understand why from a story perspective, people gravitate towards Dragon Quest V because it's a very relatable story about family uh, that a lot of people find really uh interesting however i found the game kind of frustrating as a first time dragon quest player um i was coming from jrpgs with deeper battle systems that's not to trash talk the dragon quest battle system it's just it's simple because it was the first one to come out and they never really stacked other systems on top of it they've always stayed true to what they came up with um and that meant that, like, because I'm used to more complex systems, I had no idea how to beat bosses in that game. Uh, it was just confusing to me how I was expected to beat bosses in that game because I didn't seem to be doing any damage and I died often and it was really weird. And I felt like I never really got how combat works in Dragon Quest. Uh, Dragon Quest IV, because it has this sort of transparent tutorial and this on-ramp to understanding the flavor of Dragon Quest combat... Uh, felt way more approachable to me uh, than Dragon Quest V. And I think if I went back and played Dragon Quest V again, I would probably enjoy it way, way more because I got so much more of an understanding for the combat system by playing Dragon Quest IV. Um, so for all of these reasons, I think Dragon Quest IV is probably the best Dragon Quest for new players because it teaches you how to play Dragon Quest, which is exactly what you need. Uh, and not all games do a good job of this. And it's the best Dragon Quest game for busy people because you can pick it up and play through a chapter. Like the first chapter is literally an hour long. Uh, so if you just want to get a feeling for if this game is right for you, just play an hour of gameplay and you will know very quickly if this game is for you or not. Uh, and if you are just a fan of JRPGs and you want to experience the series that wrote the rulebook for JRPGs, Dragon Quest IV is a great starting point uh, for Dragon Quest and I highly recommend it. Good. So my number two. This one, I wonder if you'll be surprised by this one because it would be <laughs> my return to a game that I have, haven't played two years. So hmm. um, this, okay. is a, this is a game that was released this year and a lot of people attribute its success to the pandemic. It was developed by Nintendo and published by Nintendo. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Animal Crossing New Horizon, released yeah, on yeah. the Nintendo Switch. Um, I wouldn't consider myself kind of a like a huge fan of Animal Crossing. Um, the last time I've played Animal Crossing before playing this version on Switch was literally when I got my fat DS more than 25 years ago. Not more than 25 years ago. 
No, wait. Twenty years ago. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm f- I'm forgetting. No, it's not in '95 that it, got it. It's in 2005. So yes, it's 15. The, D- years the ago. DS came out in like 2004, so it can't be yeah. earlier than that. No, no, it's I'm mixing up my math. So it's more or less 15 years ago, um, because I got the Fat DS, but not when it launched, and I played Animal Crossing the DS version, which I forgot its name. Uh, why quite a lot to be honest, uh, but it, Animal Crossing is a game I never got at that time and still to this day uh, it's it's uh, a game i still don't get but <laughs> that i enjoy um more or less doing so yes if you don't know animal crossing it's a life simulator right so you, in the latest install installment you're dropped on the on an island and the idea is you need to build a i should say a city but civilization on that island uh because are your best friend uh, Tamnook that is always making you uh, buy things uh, is asking you he's launching a new program where he's like buying a lot of these small islands and then putting a lot of people on it and the idea is you need to more or less do a couple of things uh, because even if it's a life simulator there's kind of a a main campaign to Animal Crossing and it has been pretty uh, consistent throughout all the games there's always uh, like a main campaign uh, in some fashion and I think Maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, from my understanding of New Horizon, that may have been the one with the, not biggest, but the more uh, ingrained into the quote-unquote storyline of the game, whereas the other ones is just more or less like you buy your house and you expand it and you have more loans on it that you just need to repay. But for this game to more or less be successful and go into this infinite mode at the end you need to do a lot of things which again they all uh, always evolve around you uh growing trees selling the fruits that I have on it and then like uh, building things which is a new thing for a new horizon i think that the main new twist to the gameplay of animal crossing from the previous game which was before you would harvest things and then sell them to get money and then with those with this money you can either repair your loans on your house or buy new furniture uh, but with this one to to fish to find fish uh, to uh, get uh, insects you need to build your own tools with more or less a crafting mechanic which some people like some people dislike i'm still not sure if i like it i feel that sometimes it is slowing uh, slowing down the game unnecessarily compared to other animal crossing and even animal crossing is a slow game because it's taking time taking place in real time which is one of the important thing with animal crossing so it is hard to binge play i would say even if i've saw tony binge play with a lot of people playing with the time on their switch to move forward backward and all that fun stuff uh which brings me to I never really finished the campaign yet because I'm, oh wow yeah I'm st- like I played a lot in March and April and as what I understood which is kind of recurring with Animal Crossing is a lot of people they like play it heavily in the first month or two then people move away and then they slowly come back and I'm still not there to me coming back I think I've played maybe last month um, but. What I enjoyed so far with it is how simple life simulation is in this game. There's not 10,000 things you can do. You can either like grow a garden, you can either fish for fish, or you can go either like uh, catch insects. 
uh, or you can build things, which is a new twist in this one. But it is kind of relaxing to do. And at fr- like I recall, even when I was younger, it was hard for me to kind of like switch my brain to that mobile. Like just play to relax. But this year, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, that was really fun to do. Um, and that's what I realized too. Even coming back later, six months later after release, it's like you just can play and do nothing and enjoy your island and that's fine you can do things it's fine too you can destroy your whole island because you've unlocked the after main campaign mode which i don't want to spoil too much and then you can do whatever you want you can let your imagination go with this new tool that you get at the end uh if you want uh that's up to you to decide um one thing that was really hard to do when i last played animal crossing literally in 2005 was visiting others i recall yannick and i we did visit each other uh we visit our towns but the fact that the switch is kind of an online ready console not the same way that the ds was uh makes it really easy to visit friends of course we can discuss about nintendo web services yeah i I think it's exactly as clunky as it was on the ds to be honest but (laughs) that didn't change too much but i felt that it is more part of the gameplay than it used to be though yeah probably not required i don't want to say like like i know for example uh with pokemon uh some pokemons to evolve you need to trade them and for some people it was hard to trade when you're the only one playing it that you know right um so with animal crossing even i think like what it helps to is that tony and i so i got the game so we can play on both the switches we, we have here and also i was i visited the somebody else island like over internet so not on local land I think once or twice. Uh, so some of Tony's friends, they were like, Tony was going to visit them. So I joined him uh, with my own save game. So it was fun too to do that. Like like see what people have done. I was like, oh yeah, people have more time than I do even in this <laughs> pandemic. Uh, so that was funny for that. But I think how I can conclude why Animal Crossing is my number two this year is I kind of recall that I enjoy Animal Crossing on a DS. But not at the same time. I was like, you know what? I, I still don't get it. And while this year in 2020, I still sometimes don't get it. Oh, you can spend like a thousand hours in it. I kind of do more. And what people want is just escapism. But I'll use the word dumb because I feel it is dumb escapism. And not in a pejorative way. Because it's really so simple that it's easy to just wander in your thoughts and relax and disconnect for your real life and build a cute life because the twist that this game put on cuteness is like to 2000 percent, literally why do you think this game is so successful with well in japan and with women especially in japan is that they have these shitty lives stressful lives being constantly sexually harassed by their superiors at work and they come home and they work way too long hours and they just want to chill out (laughs) yeah and i guess surprising to say but i guess i understood that like you know what it's a great game to just chill out um I think if I had one advice to people that never experienced Animal Crossing today, and if you get hooked 
try to push push back on this because everybody I know, even to this day, even if they play multiple games of Animal Crossing or just played the Switch one, uh, it's easy to get hooked to it and go all in. But everybody I know, and I I know it sounds anecdotal, but even Yannick mentioned that to me because he says even on streams, people add their breaking moment where like, okay, I had enough. And I think it's a great game, surprisingly enough, to just take in small chunks, even if it's easy to literally lose hours in it because you get really ingrained in the game and you really disconnect. But if you don't do that too much and you just say, like, okay, I'll do my couple of things every day um, and then you always build this habit, I can imagine you can pay thousands of hours, but not in a month, in years. And I think this is the best way to enjoy Animal Crossing. Yeah, I think, strangely enough, I think the online play aspect of it being elevated a little bit has not helped in this respect, where it sort of turns into Instagram, where you have these people who have like almost performance anxiety about being on Instagram, where like, oh, everybody Mm. else is living a better life than me, so I have to try and look like I'm living a good life too, and therefore they keep posting these fake ass pictures of like whatever uh and then like everything on instagram looks like fake everyone enjoying their lives when actually everyone is depressed uh but like sort of similar to that i think like if all of the cities you see or the towns you see on animal crossing are incredibly detailed creative works and then you come back to your island and it just like looks like basically you haven't changed it since you started the game you feel a sort Hello. of yeah you feel a sort of inferiority complex and then you're like oh i need to start time traveling with uh playing with the real time clock and all of that stuff to actually like be competitive and it's like this game is not a competition you don't actually have to do that and i think in in many ways animal crossing is best enjoyed if you play it maybe 45 minutes an hour every day and just do your daily responsibilities in quotes and do your best within those restrictions and don't take it too seriously. Like, I think a lot of the people who are streamers who are going crazy with the hours is like, I want to unlock everything. And then I want to have a beautiful town and uh, use all of the newest tech that people came up with to like, whatever, like build cityscapes and my, on my Island for the hell of it. And it's like, cool, you can do that. But, are you just doing that to keep up with the rat race or are you doing it because that's what you actually want? And like, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's a good stream game, honestly. (laughs) I I think one of the good ways that, uh, so loading ready run is a troupe of uh, comedians in Victoria, BC, and they usually have their moon base where, which is their office where they do all their streams together and all of that stuff. But this year they didn't do that because of obvious things. Uh, So, they had the show called Kathleen's Island tour every week, every, I think it's still almost a weekly show uh, where they basically just visit each other's islands and give updates on like how the islands have changed oh, nice. since the last time they had an episode and all of that. And that's a really good way to do the stream because it's not like watch me play animal crossing for eight hours straight. It's just like an hour and a half of friends talking about what changed since the last time they visited each other. And I think that's really cool but I don't think it's a very good stream game otherwise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, and that's, I think that's a lot of what you said is also why I'm like, you know what? I didn't finish the campaign and you know what? It's easy to remember where I'm at. I need to go see Tom Oak and I'll say, okay, I still owe him like a million bells. 
I forgot what if it, that's true or not. Then I'll do that. I re- this reminded me when I touched it again, which is around um, uh, Halloween, which was there was special events, hmm. and it's funny how the uh, people that live on your island with you, like the other animals that live with you, uh, the game is kind of like designed to be like. Hey, you've been a jerk and you haven't come to this island for a couple of months. Where were you? Uh, Which that always me laughs. But I can say like, I can see where this can affect some people. Like, uh, what? What? Why why is people kind of passive aggressive about me not touching the game? Uh, But, you know, it's like it's 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 funny too at the same time. Uh, Another thing I do want to mention is I feel like there's... (laughs) A lot of people are very obsessed, and this is kind of my thing, but I would never do this Animal Crossing, where uh, people want to know the mechanics of how the game works, and they found out, like, oh, you can abuse the Nook Mile system to force certain villagers to actually show up in your town. So I had Mm. stream friends who were streaming the game for, like, 35, 40 hours just abusing this mechanic over and over and over again, trying to get the random chance of getting the villager that they wanted And it was a terribly boring stream to watch because you weren't actually doing anything. You were just navigating menus and walking to see who the villager was and then retrying uh, for 30 hours or whatever. Uh, So it was bad TV. And it's also just like, if you're just, if you have this vision of this is exactly how I want my island to be, once you've done it, what the hell are you doing in the game? Like, I, I don't get it. And that's sort of how a lot of those streams burnt out is like, oh, I spent 45 hours grinding to get this one specific villager. And now that I have it, I have nothing left to do in the game. Right. And I think that's that's why I like uh, that with the campaign. And, it, you know, if you play like an hour or two per day, like, it takes a long time to end up to what is the end goal of the game i think for most people who are playing casually it took two and a half to three weeks Hmm. okay then i'm slow which is about the same that it would actually take in a normal animal crossing game previously to pay back your debt that's about how long it would take okay that's that's fair uh i'm still not done yet uh, after playing maybe on and off for at least a month and then being more on and off for the remainder of the year but i i think the Goal. I'm not fully aware of this because obviously I haven't played it, but uh, I feel like the goals in this game are stricter and you have to try harder to actually finish the game in this one than in the other one. Mm. Like in the other one, you could pretty much do whatever the hell you want and you were just going to wind up with money anyway. And you were going to pay back your debt because what else do you have to do? <laughs> but right, like. Right. In the new game, you have like more specific objectives and things and metrics you have to build around that it just slows down. Maybe not slows down, but like there are clear objectives that you have to hit in this one than in previous ones. Whereas in the previous ones, you were just naturally going to hit the objective anyway. Yeah, no, I I understand, and I think you're. It's it's a fair description, like because at some point you need you you have the ability to build a bridge, and it's kind of like. Oh, to to continue in the story, you need to build a bridge now. Yeah. So you need to have the money now and all that fun stuff. And now I'm, I'd say, stuck, quote unquote, at the place where to get the final part of the campaign is I need my town to be cute enough or like kind of like uh, yeah. that the uh, residents are happy enough about that so that they promote it so that uh, one of the characters uh, can come to the island. And I'm like sure let me do other things yeah <laughs> so that's what i'm doing right now 
doing other things like changing my tree my fruit trees having fun with my garden that's where i left the game literally i was like i was doing other things even if there are strict goals to do i'm one of the few people who was incredibly turned off by the crafting system like when i saw there was a crafting system in this game i lost all interest immediately i i I think it worked you know what i think it worked nice to and it fits with the 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 context that you're on an island that has nothing but i I agree i just don't like that (laughs) but you lose me for your basic tools because yeah, yeah. like if your axe get destroyed, you need to build it again and make sure that you've put resources aside for building it again. You can still go buy it. And that's where I, it lost me a bit is I wish that if you ran, you end up at a certain level or a certain moment in a campaign is that those tools, they never break. Hmm. So that the rest, yes, you can grind. You can grind building a bed. You can grind building furniture. You can grind to and do the crafting for those. And I think this part is fun. Isn't that how Minecraft works? Like you get diamond tools after a while if you just keep crafting enough axes and stuff. I I the, I have never played Minecraft, so I'm talking about my ass. Why are you asking ass, me but... then? Yes, yeah. why are you asking me? But uh, like, it, it feels like something that would be like obvious to build in, and I don't know how much of this is just like Nintendo sort of repeating their uh, their uh, like destructible stuff from Zelda Breath of the Wild, and they're right. like, oh, that was well received. Let's do it again, even though it wasn't really well received anyway. Right, right. No, so you, you do end up like you do end up like just having like a couple of axes already ready. So you're like wh- when you're like doing something and your tool break, you just go back in your house, you go in your storage area, and it's like, oh yeah, okay, here's another one, and then you move forward, or you go to Nook, Tom Nook, and then you just buy another one if that's that. Of course, it's cheaper to uh, to craft one, but uh, there's that. But I agree with you that for the tools, I feel that that should be part of the storyline, and yeah. then not all the time. So that is it for Animal Crossing. I think it is a good reason. That's why it's my top. It's a part of the top two this year. I think it's a good reason if you haven't buy a Switch, and I think that's what happened to a lot of people. They bought a Switch only for this game. This is, is a Ring Fit, and yes, Ring Fit, which is not on my list, but we also bought it. Like, I think a month ago. So, but I mean, like Ring Fit has been sold out all year. That's just why I mention it. <laughs> oh 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 yeah, yeah i don't know because when we looked it was available in best buy and then we just went like ordered it and then we went and they delivered it to you got incredibly lucky <laughs> yeah i think so i think so but th- there was in stock and we bought it and then boom but uh, again i don't have to talk about it because we yeah. played it in last month okay game of the year for you my friend all right uh so this is a game that closely resembles super mario 64 but obviously it is not a nintendo 64 game of course uh, not it is ape escape developed by se japan studio and published by sony computer entertainment originally released on the playstation in 1999 uh, i will note there is a psp remake but considering that this game is a showcase for dual analog controller and the psp has one half of an analog stick <laughs> uh don't play it <laughs> wasn't uh, it this game that was the first game on iphone too i'm mixing it up uh i think there might have been an ape escape themed mobile yeah. game but it was not ape escape itself okay um or actually no it was uh everybody's golf uh hot shots golf that was the first mobile sony developed mobile game Right now, but I'm talking about the uh, first game that was like really prominent on the iPhone launch. 
Uh, no. Okay. Super monkey ball is what you're thinking. Ah, oh, that's why. It's, I, 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 you know what? I was sure there was two monkeys. I'm sure I was mixing one yeah, and the other. Sega monkeys, not Sony monkeys. Uh, uh, that's my problem. <laughs> so this obviously sandbox 3D platformer. I sort of ex- uh, explained that distinction earlier on in the episode. Uh, so both Super Mario 64 and Ape Escape are sandbox 3D platformers on the first generation of 3D focused consoles, and both were designed as showcases for specific controller hardware. And I was really interested in checking this one out after Try from My Life in Gaming uh, put this as his favorite new to me game of 2019. Uh, he also called it the second best platformer of that console generation after Mario 64. Uh, so we can agree to dis- disagree on the number one, but uh, I think he's <laughs> pretty good on the rest. Uh, and the gist of the game is that a bunch of brainwashed time-traveling monkeys kidnap your friends, and you have to go capture the monkeys with a net across time. Uh, so you go to like the dinosaurs era, you go to the Sengoku era in Japan or whatever, and you could just go capture these monkeys with sirens on their head. Uh, it's incredibly cute. Uh, and Ape Escape was the first game to require a DualShock controller. So I don't think I actually knew about this until very, very late. But the original PlayStation uh, originally came with a controller that had no analog sticks. I don't think I've ever seen that until like I bought controllers without analog sticks recently. And when I saw the PlayStation Classic. Uh, I've never seen those controllers in actual practice. I think I did, by the way. I recall uh, maybe a neighborhood that had a fat PS1 that had those. Yeah, I didn't. I, all my friends were Nintendo people, so I am very familiar with the N64 controller. But like <laughs> PS1, I've only ever seen the DualShock until like three years ago. Uh, so I actually really, really like the original PS1 controller, and I actually use it even sometimes for ps2 games because i think for certain types of games it works really really well uh and then later on in the ps1's life they introduced uh the dual analog controller very briefly which is rare and not very easy to find and later the dualshock controller uh which added dual shot uh dual analog sticks and vibration functionality respectively so the original dual analog was just the two analog sticks and there were concave like the ps4 ones uh, and then DualShock was convex and had vibration. Uh, eventually, DualShock would become the standard pack-in controller for the PS1, which is why those were the only ones that I saw, because I was, like, the first PS1 I ever saw was playing Gran Turismo 2. Uh, and all subsequent Sony consoles would model their controllers on the original DualShock. Uh, DualShock 1, 2, 3 are very close to the original DualShock, and then DualShock 4 started deviating to some degree, and now with the DualSense controller, it's wild west um so what's interesting about ape escape is it came out pretty early in the history of 3d gaming in all respects like i know it's been like almost five years since the start of the 3d gaming generation by 1999 when this came out but there were still no real conventions as to what how 3d game controls work at the time dual analog camera controls weren't a thing because dual analog controls weren't standard yet uh they would become standard in the ps2 and GameCube and Xbox era. So the gimmick of the game is that your uh, character, which is Spike, this little kid, uh, gains access to various gadgets throughout the games. And then the controls for those gadgets are that with the four face buttons, you can quickly switch between your four equipped gadgets. Uh, So you just tap it and it immediately switches to that gadget being the active one. You move your character with the left stick 
uh, the right stick involves using your gadget. And that's sort of like what the innovation of this game is. Uh, like how that manifests itself on the right stick is conditional on what gadget you are actively using. So I'll give you some examples in a little bit. And the camera is unfortunately controlled with the trigger buttons, which we will talk about a little bit later. So some of those gadget usage examples, if you're using the net, which is the basic uh, gadget, you just aim the net and swing it in the direction you push the stick. Pretty straightforward. Uh, you can get a remote control car. Uh, if you do that, you can drive the small remote control car with the right stick into gaps where you wouldn't fit. And then uh, with the left stick, you can move your control uh, your character at the same time. So you can move both at the same time, which is kind of interesting at some, certain points. Um, there's a propeller. So if you draw circles with uh, the analog stick, you will shoot up into the air very quickly and then you slowly uh, fall down. Uh, so you can use this as a sort of uh, double jump of sorts uh, to reach higher places. There's a hula hoop. If you draw circles with a stick, uh, with the right analog stick, while you move your character, you will run more quickly because you are spinning the hula hoop at the same time. Uh, there's a slingshot where if you pull back on the right analog stick, you basically like do the slingshot thing. Uh, although that is best used in first person mode, which you can uh, enable with one of the L buttons. So that's just an example of five gadgets, but I think there's closer to 15 in the entire game if you unlock them all, which is quite a lot of stuff. And that brings me to how incredibly impressive this game is because of how much stuff is in the game. The maps are incredibly large. They are subdivided into different segments that load in and out of memory quite fast when you go to a, a barrier. Uh, so th there's like the these doors, and if you go through the door, you basically load that segment and it's basically instant like there's a fade in fade out and you're right there uh, which is surprising for a ps1 game uh, there is a ton of visual variety across all of these maps there is a great variety in what the gadgets can do and they're always all loaded uh, so if you go to the pause menu you can swap between them at any time there's no load time you don't have to uh, choose which four you want before going into a level and then you're stuck with them for the whole level you can swap them at any time kind of like uh, zelda 64 uh, so it is just like there's always these g gimmicky things in memory somewhere on the ps1 and What's really interesting is that the variety of all of these gadgets uh, plays out in the boss fights because there are many different strategies you can use to defeat the bosses with the different gadgets. And it's really cool to see the different approaches people take to beating the bosses in this game. And I think this game uh, could never be made today because Ape Escape's camera controls suck, but they're also like, it's important that they suck because otherwise the main gameplay of the game doesn't work uh, so when you're playing ape escape you're going to be doing once again similarly to zelda 64 you're going to be using the left trigger to recenter the camera behind your character constantly uh, you're always going to be mashing one of the l buttons uh, and the problem with that is that we've sort of decided as the gaming industry that camera controls are a solved problem uh, and they have been for a really long time. You just map it to the dual analog sticks, but that con conflicts with the main mechanic of what makes this game special. Uh, so you can't do that. And I really have trouble believing that you could release a game in 2020 that deliberately has a shitty camera in favor <laughs> of a novel game mechanic that would be a success and, like, the only way you could get away with it is if you made a VR game, because then you don't need to have camera controls. But 
the same studio that made Ape Escape is already making Astro Bot, which is kind of playing that role already. So you don't need an Ape Escape game in VR, which means this franchise is just dead. Um, so, yeah, the camera controls are one of the main issues I have with Ape Escape. The other one is it's very inconsistent frame rate, which is frustrating from a technical point of view. But the game is so good that you put up with it anyway. Um now, good to know is that uh, Ape Escape 2 is a PS2 game, uh, which plays very similarly to Ape Escape 1. I've rented it multiple times in the past, and I had lots of fun with it uh, while I rented it. And that was a solid 60 FPS. And Ape Escape 3 is also on PS2, and it is apparently the best in the series, but I've never played it. So I'm very curious about that. But if you have an open mind and you think you can tolerate less than ideal camera controls... Uh, I agree with Try. Ape Escape is an incredibly fresh feeling and fun 3D platformer that uh, every gamer should experience because it just feels so different from what we're used to nowadays. But it's not. But it's not better than the Super Mario 64. Uh, it's better than Super Mario 64 by a lot. <laughs> I don't want to go into my my side career as a Super Mario 64 commentator. But, uh, commentator, uh, I would say basher, but sure. Well, so so Select Button, which is the video game forum I I hang out at, is having a sort of GameFAQs style tournament bracket for the top video games of all time. And of course, Super Mario 64 is on this list because how could it not be? Uh, so it was my, mm-hmm. my duty as a Super oh, Mario 64 no. hater to go in and tell people why they're all wrong about Super Mario 64. And oh. uh, I got a lot of shit in the last month. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, no. But though, uh, while I'm trolling a bit, uh, your description of ABSK, I kind of like I, I Google and I know why I mixed the the monkeys again. Uh, but it looked like a game I would enjoy. And with your description, I was like, you know what? Like it, like it sounds really fun. Even if some of the game mechanics are a bit weird with the camera uh, position positioning that you were discussing. So uh, again, I will have to maybe find a PS2 for this. But uh, it sounds really good. Yep. So come on, tell me the game I know is number one. <laughs> I, come on, you would know that I would put it, and I th- I have I have a line here that says I couldn't not make it my game of the year. Oh God, okay, <laughs> I know. So this is a game I've been waiting for a long time since I played the first installment on Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Oh no, 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 no. Uh, and you're correct, Yannick. It is The Last of Us Part Two. Um, this is quite interesting. Uh, this game got a lot of shit. Um, and I would say overall, not really well deserved. Some of it, yes, but the overall negative, uh, reviews and, uh, negativity that it got on the internet, um, is a bit too much and a lot too much, I would even say. Um, I do agree that it is a flawed game uh, with a decisive story um, compared to the first game where I enjoyed the story a lot. I replayed it a lot too. I think three or four times, which is a rare occurrence for me to replay video games, especially story-based ones. Um, I was hooked to the storyline and why I say it's a flawed game is because it it is an emotionally hard story to 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 go through it, and 
I think what Naughty Dog has been able to do is bring up the worst case scenario that would happen in a post-apocalyptic world that The Last of Us plays in and to make you realize that like everything that you made as more or less like can cause effect and that is i think what people had a hard time to digest is people mm. came out there's a lot of things right but and i think we can discuss about those too but people came out of the first game where the uh shouldn't we talk about the the, the spoilers i, I don't <laughs> really think we should I, I was wondering how you were gonna play around that if you were gonna do spoiler section or not but okay I'll start with that. A lot of people were like me and they were eagerly awaiting this game for years. The fact that all the cutscenes got leaked didn't really start that really well. People were first really pissed that the cutscene got leaked, which meant they learned the big spoiler of the game, which I recall when I learned, like I played through it. Like Luckily for me, it didn't get spoiled. I played the game. And I was like, oh my fucking God, what happened, right? When I, when that <laughs> happened. And Yannick can recall because I was literally texting him. Um, and, and I was also basically trying to patrol the internet so that you were not seeing the spoilers. Right, because you didn't care. I think you, you watched them when they, they just like showed up. Uh, just because I think you're still quite curious about the game, but not enough for playing it. Just to I, know. I knew it was going to be an extremely controversial game just because it's a Naughty Dog AAA game and people are sick. Oh, okay. Snobby people like my friends are sick of AAA game design and the type of prestige drama game that The Last of Us is trying to be. So I knew people were going to be pissed about it anyway. I did not know how the rest of the internet was going to be re- uh, reacting to these cutscenes. And unfortunately, it, it also was a shit show for that too. Right. Um, and yeah, that I, I was just like watching the the destruction from afar and uh enjoying my popcorn more than anything else yeah i think you were um so since i've played this game uh when it launched so i played it it launched in june um and more or less in july i was done like and i did a lot of thinking about it uh like a lot of triple a games uh there's a lot of flawed problems like and I think one of them I, I think is still valid is I think this game is trying to be more uh, to bring more diverse background of people and it is doing it in the flawed way and I think this game can be critiqued on this the other thing I think you can critique this game on is you might dislike where the plot twist goes and it is a good creative decision to do what they've done and Let's just say, I'll say, they killed somebody that you wish they didn't kill. I've, I, let's, I, I think Eniki can put the bell, whatever we want to do there, but I'm sure you get spoiled. Oh, you already played this game because I wouldn't say, if you don't know this game, like, sorry. Uh, You're doing a great job of selling people on playing this I know, game. I know, I know. And the, the maybe the, the part is, if this is a story that you want to get hooked on, you'll literally get hooked on. And I think that's what they still captured from the first game. It is completely hard to drop the controller and say, like, oh, I need to, I, I need to stop. Uh, 
it is easy because it is emotionally draining and that I need to put a lot of caveats around it. It is emotionally draining. To the level I was expecting, maybe not. I think they, they gave us a, a bit more than I was expecting uh, from the tease they gave. But this you playing with Ellie and who everybody on the internet thinks is the bad person, a general character, Abby, I think it's, it is giving you a perspective of two worlds colliding with each other. And I think this was well made. And I've had local friends here in Montreal that we text quite greatly and been able like, this is the worst part of this game and I really want to destroy this game because of that. And I think <laughs> by reflecting on the storyline though, I think it is well made, this aspect. Because both, chara- both main characters, which is Ellie and Abby, have their storyline and they have their own struggle. And I think that's where the, the emotional part is kind of like, mind-bending at the end especially when you like it's end credit you drop the controller and then you go on you go on with your life for days but it's still kind of in the background and you kind of start to digest the game and i think that's we can say that a lot of people don't do that in video games and yes i agree this is a game that needs that needs you to digest it uh it's a lot at once and that is maybe why this is why i feel it's a flawed game because you cannot literally Drop the controller, go on your computer and start typing. You can't. You need to think about it and think about the perspective of you being one of those two characters. Because what's what's so interesting and ingrained in the, like it wants you to continue the story is like you want to see what will those two main characters will do in those situations and how they go on with their weird life in this post-apocalyptic my goodness, I'm blanking on the word apocalyptic world. Um, and how what one have done to each other and then they, they kind of go on with that and it's infuriating because i do feel this is one part i will agree is they're slowly but surely destroying ellie as a character but at the same time it's hard to be not fucked up if you live even a small centimeter of what she lived through this storyline which is the bad part though i i that part is where Again, a lot of trying to bring diversity, they kind of did it semi-grade and it replays uh, some of the typical, oh, it's LGBTQ, like suffering and killing each other, which let's agree on this, uber bad. But overall, I if you like immersive story art games, you cannot not play this game. That's my problem. And that's always when I reflect on this is even with all those flaws, it's hard for me to say, why like why are you not playing it because in its genre it is a must play and that's why i really wrote in my notes i could not not make it my game of the year even if compared to the first installment i might never touch it again and i'm a bit overly dramatic today i'm sure a year or two from now maybe well there's something like when i have my ps5 and they'll launch the remastered version of the remastered version i'll play it again <laughs> But I'm eager to see what they'll do after it. If there's going to be a part three. Because the way the story leaves you, it's kind of like a bit kind of a, on a, not a sad note, but kind of an end note. Like you, don't, you feel that there's more to the story. But in the end, they're like, yeah, you need to live with your, the consequences of your choices. Which is kind of like a shitty, a shitty thing to end on, if you think about yeah. it. But that's what made it so immersive. And also self-reflecting, which is strange enough. So 
the reason it's my game of the year is a bit because of all the polemic around it and also because the way this story is played out. Flawed, I cannot agree against that. But immersive and decisive, it is. You really want to finish this story. And again, lastly on this, I would say spoil yourself and go read it. Because I can see for some people that it might be triggering. And it might just be better for you to read it. And like read a, a plot summary of it or read uh, about some of the plot twists because... And I, I would actually suggest read the plot synopsis rather than watch the cutscenes that leaked first because a lot of people actually misinterpreted the cutscenes and that led to some backlash that it was completely undeserved because it wasn't actually true because they didn't actually get the part of the story that was from the gameplay that they didn't have between it so go read the plot summary instead of watching the cutscenes if possible otherwise you get an incomplete story or you might misinterpret certain things no for sure Uh, i totally agree with you on that the 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 cutscenes are to give you context on some of the gameplay you've just done for sure it starts like like a lot of these games, a lot of the like Uncharted and Not Doggies game of the recent years, like you start with cutscenes, right? But the following cutscenes are important to the gameplay you do, and I think that's what people neglected the most is this duality. You might not like it, and you know what? Even myself, like at first, I utterly despise uh, Abby. But if you think about what happens in the storyline, and I'm not saying that's what they want you to guide you, but I think there's a part of population that played this game will realize it's like, you know what? I ended this game and I was, Tony and I were talking about it and we end up flipping on this. Meaning like, we're not sure if we like Ellie anymore with all the the, the changes that happened to the storyline. And for a lot of people, that's like too much. Like they they kill their perfect their their perfect story that the father and the and the girl and like why have you destroyed this? Have you listened to the incomparable episode about the Last of Us Two? I did not. You would probably enjoy that episode. I did not. Uh, in in two reasons. So lack of time is one. Second, I really wanted to form my own opinion in preparation for yeah. this episode before listening too much because. You know what? Like all the polemic that happens on the internet, it like <laughs> went through the roof in June and literally July 4th, it was dead. Like nobody cared. Like people moved on with their lives. Uh, you might see more because you're more onto yes. this side of the world, right? <laughs> and I, I, but the way it blew up was like everywhere. Like it was literally everywhere and that died down. But okay, so I, I'm going to give the the. I, I don't want to shit on this game too much because no, you can't think no. But like honestly, like even I don't feel comfortable shitting on it like I do on Mario 64 <laughs> because I don't know enough about the game honestly. Fair point to shit on it in certain ways, but I do understand where certain people are coming, and I think one of the things that is frustrating is that. A lot of the backlash to this game has nothing to do with the actual product of this game itself. It has to do with uh, the development of this game and how Naughty Dog has responded to critiques of this game. Hmm. And the, the development aspect, of course, is, and this is the same thing that's going on with Cyberpunk right now, is that this game was delayed multiple, multiple times. The developers have said, we don't do crunch and force our employees to work on 
uh, overtime and all of that stuff when in reality that was not true and they were working overtime the entire time that they were in crunch mode because the game was delayed and they still made a game well uh, now i'm talking about cyberpunk not about Le- uh, last of us but right. like this is a problem in triple a gaming where games get delayed and then you work overtime until the game ships and then you ship Oftentimes you ship a shitty product and then you have to do overtime to ship the patches for your product, which is exactly what's happening with Cyberpunk right now. Uh, Luckily, Naughty Dog kind of got it right the first time. I don't think there have been significant performance or bug fix related patches afterwards. Not that I'm aware. But it was still like delayed multiple, multiple times. uh, And that entire time, everyone was grinding like crazy. And it's like, there's a certain part of the market, which is like, was it worth it? Was all of that human effort worth it to deliver this game and then there are a lot of people who just like don't like what this game is right uh, because it's a triple a game and unfortunately triple a games are quite formulaic in 2020 uh so that is one aspect of the thing the other thing is the re- response to criticism which is the thing that drives me crazy about a lot of these triple a game studios is that AAA game studios ever since like 2008 they're they're on this thing where it's just like we want to legitimize video games as art and we are going to do this by basically writing an hbo prestige drama and making a video game around it except the video game is the same video game that everyone's been making since 2008 and whatever some people enjoy that and that's hello hello Yeah, yeah yeah that's fine but the problem is like when you say this in a review like the guy uh Neil Druckerman I think is his name right. who Druckman. runs yeah he basically like made this thing which is like oh you don't understand man like uh, this is art man this is so deep you <laughs> don't understand man and like everyone was fucking pissed the other thing is that this game literally has references to the games released since 2008 that were like games as art in air quotes examples so they're very much aware of the bullshit they are doing and they're like oh yeah yeah we've included all of these references to all of these games that are basically trying to say exactly the same thing that this game is trying to say because we want to wink at the people who get the games as art discussion but at the same time as soon as the people who have the games as art discussion start saying anything negative about our game we get to hand wave away anything (laughs) that we said about games as art which like that's a big like fuck you uh, from me of like if you're going to like position this as the games as art piece you have to be also willing to receive the criticism that games as art receive and not just hand wave it away and be like it's just a game man <laughs> because that's like fucking bullshit uh so like that is the level to which i am comfortable criticizing the last of us too i think there are a lot of other bits of criticism that like people I am friends with and whatever will hurl at the game. And I simply don't feel like I have enough information to take sides on who I agree with, who I don't agree with. There are some things I flatly disagree with. Like, I don't even want to say it. It's too stupid. Um, but like, <laughs> No, I think you should. I think you should. But that's... Oh, Well, okay. Bre- uh, briefly trigger warning for transphobia. Skip forward two minutes. So when the cutscenes list uh, leaked about uh, Abby being the main character... There was this huge furor on the internet because everybody thought that, well, everybody, the bad gamers on the internet, the people who are like gamer gators and all of that stuff, they were thinking that Abby was a trans character. And that started the entire shitstorm, which is not only did you kill <laughs> Joel, 
but you also replace the main character of the game with a trans character, which of course, like these fuckers are transphobic. So that did not go well. And then there was like the backlash to the backlash, which was like, oh, well, Naughty Dog knew that there was going to be this reaction where people were going to think that she's trans and they fucked up by not stopping it. And I'm like, whoa, what is this 4D chess thing? You were just calling them <laughs> stupid for like failing to get these basic plot points correctly. And now they're playing 4D chess with the Abby character? Like, I don't get it. So like, I flatly disagree with that interpretation of how things played out. Uh, but at the same time, like, I'm a straight white guy, so who the fuck, who the fuck knows? But like, th- that is one of the things I found profoundly stupid in like the the informed gamer uh, backlash to this game. I was like, no, this is a little bit too stupid for me. I- I'm happy that you brought up the this part about Abby because, again, I think the story. If you play the game and not only what, but if you only watch the cutscene, I could say that like she's made to be the bad, the the bad character of the game, but. Overall, that's not the, what the story. I, my interpretation of what I think should be the art, blah blah blah, for this game is in the end, it's not that that it wants you to end up. It is the choice you make in life, are what makes you good or bad. And you know mm. what? Sometimes you make good choices. Sometimes you make bad choices. And I think that's I think that's literally what has been a bit uh, pissing off people. Is it was a bit too philosophical about life? No, I I don't think that's it. I, well, I think a certain no. After you played the game, after you played the game, sorry, I should have added that, that. That's why. After you get, you, you beat the game and you played the game, I think there's a portion of people that was like, but you killed my favorite character. And then you, like, you made my favorite, my other favorite character the bad person in the end. It's like, yeah, because she made bad choices. And that's life, you know? Well, again, we could extend this episode yes. by like five hours by yes. talking about this, but like, the game doesn't really give you choices. <laughs> It's yes. like you're coming on this ride whether you want it or not. You either play this game or you don't play this game, but that's the choice you have. Right. No, and again, you could have a game that made you choose whether you're bad, and that's also kind of part... And it would take five other years to develop, and it would be way more complicated, which is like why it's a complicated discussion to have in a ending segment of an episode like this one. Right. But it, it's just like, I, I think you're under... I, I think, and I think maybe that's good for you in certain ways. You're underrepresenting the amount of legitimate criticism there is about this game. I think there is more legitimate criticism, and you are downplaying it either because you haven't seen it, which is fine, or because you don't want to see it. Uh, you know what? And I, I don't get me wrong. I think that's why I say it is a flawed game because there's a lot of shitty critics on this game. And there's yes. a lot of deservedly so on. Yes. And if you don't have the radar to be like, these people are the people bitching about the existence of literally anything LGBT in games at all. And like, there's this other group, which is like, we're all gay. And we we just dislike this game for other reasons that are unrelated to XYZ. Uh, like, if you don't have a good radar to track that, like, it's easy to just say, oh, well, there's a lot of undeserved criticism when in reality it's like there's this silo of people who have this extremely toxic criticism about your game that is probably unwarranted and then there is like this ocean still left over of legitimate criticism about this game because it's triple a game and triple a games have lots of flaws (laughs) yeah and i think maybe that's what you mean by me underplaying it is i'm not surprised it is a flawed game in the end like 
Yeah. And not surprised. Like, even if I come down for me waiting for this game for the last seven years, like, I'm not surprised that there's things to critic about it. The same way we can critic a lot of how the movie, like, our, our arts decisions are made in movies, to go back to your art argument, right? Because they're yeah. like, they're the same. Okay, I'm opening this. They're the same type of people making those types of decisions. We're more or less white men's, right? Mm-hmm. And that I get. And I think it shouldn't be downplayed. It should be critics and it should be sent to the makers of these games. And that's fair to do that. But have they made enough bad decision to made it like a, of like, oh, I don't watch any X movie because the the actor in the movie is like utterly bad. Maybe I'm not too much aware of that. And that's why I still think it is deserving of game of the year because of that. Uh, and that's maybe where we can disagree. I, I'm going to end this by just saying there are a lot of people and like, I feel like you're kind of hand waving it away by saying, well, they actually need to play the game or whatever, but there are a lot of people for which this story, just like the story it's trying to tell, even with the ups and downs is just not something that is as deep as everyone thinks it is. And therefore to them, it feels like a let down because it's just like this, <laughs> this dumb concept that like every, everybody knows already. It's just like, Oh yeah. Reminder this thing that everybody knows. And it's just like, it, it doesn't feel as deep as everyone is making it out to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of the criticism that I've seen outside of the bad criticism. <laughs> that's and, while I might not agree or disagree with, uh, I think that is fair. Like I can understand how you can go to, with this logic and then end up like, you know what? It is not deserving for me to play it because I feel the the story is not like the grandiose thing that some people think it is. Yeah, and it, like t- to be perfectly honest, like a lot of those people are also the same people who are tired of HBO prestige dramas because they're just like there's too much of it we're there's too much of all of this kind of media all over the place right and i think right there might be some level of exhaustion to that kind of treatment of media uh in the greater gaming community especially like you you only play a couple of games a year whereas people who are just like constantly consuming games like you get exhausted of that much more quickly um but that is like the degree to which I am comfortable representing the criticism that there has been regarding this game uh, over the last year. It, my personal opinion is I largely don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's good. No, it's good. Like, you know what? Like, when we discuss about video games, you know, I have a high level view because I don't consider myself like like really into it to like a lot into it, like where it's like the only thing I consume every day, right? So yeah, and I'm not saying that you do that, but you're more into that culture than I do. And I spend way too much time talking about video games, as is demonstrated by how much time we talked about video games both today and on the show this year. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Before we end that note, let's talk a bit about what we're looking for for the next year. Right. Okay. Um. So, well, I I want to conclude that with like I think I'm gonna end the year of playstation oh oh i'm surprised well it's to move into something different so uh my conclusion of the two years of playstation is that the playstation is a fascinating console with a ton of variety 
What I really appreciate about it is that there's so many games that are playable in bite-sized chunks, but they're also these super chunky 50 to 100 hour games if you really want to just get in there and go ham. Um, and that variety and the flexibility with regards to playtime and all of that stuff and the lack of modern gaming bullshit makes it a really appealing system for someone who is either really busy or really exhausted who wants to enjoy games of every genre as long as you don't mind how games can look pretty primitive uh for a really long time i've said like if you had to buy one console for 2d gaming and one console for 3d gaming uh the obvious choice would be buy a super nintendo for 2d gaming and buy uh ps2 for 3d gaming i think if we ignore backwards compatibility which muddies this entire thing uh i think you could probably actually make the case that if you are someone who is an enthusiast about gaming uh the 3d console you should be buying is actually the ps1 because that while the ps2 has a lot more of games that would be mass market acceptable and that people would be willing to play in 2020 the ps1 has more interesting things uh to people who appreciate video games to discover and that is really sort of the lesson i've taken from this study of the playstation library that doesn't mean i'm going to stop playing ps1 games because as i mentioned i have almost an entire ikea shelf worth of ps1 games right now uh and i'm probably going to order more but i think i'm more generally interested in uh broadening the year of playstation to heisei era gaming which is uh the japanese calendar era that ended in 2018 so from 1989 to 2018 which is more or less like the games we grew up on plus recent history right that's that's a lot of games yeah, it's basically almost all the video games since they started being good again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, I have a Wii that is here for GameCube backward compatibility, and I literally have one GameCube game. I should probably get more GameCube games, and unfortunately, they, they're just real expensive. Uh, I want to delve more into PS2 games, and I think a lot of this has been motivated by, uh, like, since the change in the uh, Japanese calendar era last year there have been a lot of videos and documentaries about the history of Heisei era gaming that has led me to believe that basically I just look at a lot and this is kind of what you mentioned earlier I look at a lot of these games that were released in that time period and I get immediately excited to want to play them whereas I look at what is coming out and being announced today and I don't care about anything uh, and like it sort of falls into one of three buckets which is like you have the AAA games like Last of Us 2 we just talked about mm -hmm. which is not really my thing we have the games as a service thing which is like destiny apex legends which is like i'm kind of into that but like a very specific segment of those and then there's all of the weird indie shit and like i kind of only care about the online gaming portion of that because that has an ephemeral lifespan and i don't really care about anything else being released and that kind of sucks uh so i think i'm just going to focus on the areas of gaming that i do actually care about which is like japanese made video games during 1989 to 2018 especially on like ps1 ps2 generation systems and i'll see what comes out of that and of course like game boy is entirely contained within that uh both uh classic game boy and gba 
So I, I don't know. I'm just, there's so many games in these fucking documentaries that I'm like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to play that. <laughs> and I never did. And maybe now is the time to play those things instead of not being excited about whatever the hell is coming out on PS5. I will agree, I agree on you with that point. Like we spend maybe 20, 35, 20, 30 minutes talking about uh, why The Last of Us Part Two is my game of the year. But if I even reflect on what's coming, I'm like, What's coming? If you see what I mean, Horizon Part Two, and I'm like, I can't... Gran Turismo Seven. <laughs> okay, ignoring Gran Turismo Seven, right? Gran Turismo is kind of yeah. yeah, it's like timeless in my book. But like, what are the big games I am waiting for for the future? Whereas this year, I felt I did have a great mix of literally like AAA titles from this year with The Last of Us. Even I would consider not AAA, but like. It's a new title. Like Animal Crossing is a new game from this year. And I look at the list and I have way more recent games than I would have expected to be. But I have two extremes. I have either like super recent games or super old games like Time Hollow and even uh, Danganronpa, which is 2010. You want to play eight, uh, not Ape Escape, <laughs> Age of Empires. I want to I want to revisit like uh, some of the RTS I, lo- I grew up with. You're correct. And even me... You can still make fun of me, but me enjoying playing Super Mario 64 is revisiting or even playing games I wish I played a long time ago. And funnily enough, I do have a lot of that uh, in what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And and again, for me, it's not entirely nostalgia uh, generated. Like, like to a certain degree, I do remember playing Fantasy Star Online Episode 1 and 2 on the GameCube with my friends in the local multiplayer mm-hmm. and now they're like fan-made unofficial servers and i'm like i really want to get on these pso servers and play this old mmo that's discontinued uh like uh to some degree i've had some curiosity with regards to world of warcraft and all of that stuff which uh with world of warcraft classic actually being out and some tinkering i did on private servers last year uh, like that's also interesting. I should probably play Final Fantasy XI before that gets taken offline at some point, which is an MMO from the early 2000s uh, in the Final Fantasy franchise. And there's just so much stuff released in that time that I had so much excitement for. But like, if you can't, well, especially as a kid, you can't own all the video game systems right. and play all the video games because you don't have the money. Uh, and I guess to a certain degree i still can't because the games have gone up in value but uh i can do a better job of it if i want to cover everything that was released back in those days that i never got to experience and i think i should do that while i can afford the games before they skyrocket to super absurd value but you're making a good point about game getting expensive and i'll make one of those analogies i bring up to cars uh I okay. I'm about to make a comment that makes it worse, but there's a lot of rich people, right? And yes. some of those rich people are of our age and growing up, which means a couple of years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, the market for muscle cars of the 60s and 70s were super hot because the people that when they wanted to have those cars and they were 20 something, now they're 50 something and they have retirement money. Right? Or do you yeah. even have like, oh, I'm in my business and I'm 35 and I have a shit ton of money, so now I want to buy them. What's getting hot right now is 80s, 90s, and the early 2000 cars is because people of our generation are getting into good positions. And I'm not saying everybody. Go look at the price of Pokemon cards this year. 
exactly insane. i'm not surprised that a car that is like or even any video games that it was worth like 50 dollars or even like five dollars that you can buy like a couple of years back in your flea market and it is now like only available on ebay because all the people went to those flea market and trying to make money that's also why literally there's like 2000 like 95 under civic with like 3,000 kilometers that is worth $50,000. There's a Binger trailer example. I'm not making a joke. That was so like for 50 USDs, 50K USD. It's crazy. People have too much mm-hmm. money, more or less, right? But nostalgia is driving that a lot. And I would agree that nostalgia is half of the reason why I'm revisiting those old consoles. The other half is what we bitched about in this Google Stadia episode about the current modern consoles. Is they're too complex. Literally, they're too yeah. complex. And I want to deal with it. I want to deal with update. Just, I want to play. <laughs> or oftentimes I just go to the PlayStation store and there's like 17 different SKUs I can buy. And I'm like, I don't even know which one is right. Actually, when, when I bought Nier Automata, which I did not like, I mentioned that last year yes. on the episode. I literally did not think I could not buy the deluxe edition. But oh. I think the standard edition is called the deluxe edition. So I was confused or something like that. And I posted about it on the forums and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just confusing as hell. But you have to buy like this thing that looks like a deluxe edition. But that's just the base game. I was like, wow, this is bullshit. I don't even know what to buy anymore. And I used to be the person who did this for my parents and grandparents when they wanted to buy gifts for people. Right. And I brought it up. I brought this up. Not twice, but like I brought it up when I was talking about Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Uh, the other game I mentioned that not this episode, but we'll talk next year is uh, Marvel Spider Man 2000, uh, 2018. And because I bought the Game of the Year edition, it included the DLC. Like if I bought it like $80, like a year and a half ago, I would have bought maybe the DLC for like $20, $30 each, or uh, maybe $20, $30 for the whole package. Like you don't have to deal with this with old consoles. You got. And even with old games, you got the game, and the game is a well-contained box. You put the CD or the cartridge, you press power, and it works. Yep. And that has simplicity that it seems that even like us nerds, uh, it's weird that I say that, but sometimes I want this simplicity in my life. Yep. So I'm uh, I'm eager to that. So there's I think uh, if I'm kind of stealing your point a bit. Uh, on my side, there's a bit of nostalgia gaming, and I think uh, NL gaming is a bit of driven by nostalgia. Some of my RTS plays, even if I'm exploring Google uh, GeForce now, excuse me, for playing uh, Age of Empire 2, uh, there's a lot of nostalgia gaming that I'm surprised that even a year ago I wouldn't have said that's there. But this year, I'm willing to go more there and exploring more of that nostalgia gaming that I wish, not that I wish, that I was expecting before. So I have a proposal to make to you with regards to this. Uh Uh-oh. So we are both turning 30 in 2021. Yes. Don't remind me, but yes. I know. I'm the same way. But uh, how about for the April, for my episode in April. Which is when you turn 30. Yes. We both play a game from 1991. Ooh, I like this idea. Okay, we'll talk about it later, but there's a tease for you listeners. Yes, I like this idea. This this reminds me of what I was talking about. Again, car anecdote. When I was talking with somebody that just bought the first Den Miata, which got launched in 89 in Japan and 90 in the US, if I recall correctly. And this person bought a 91. And let me tell you, like I don't even need to tell you how their face looked when I said, oh, your car is as old as me. And they were like, <laughs> oh, fuck, I'm old. 
So yes. <laughs> so yes. And you know what? I hope one day I'm able to buy a cheap 91 Miata and say this car is as old as me. Because A, it's a nice car, and B, that's funny to say. Is that it? I think it is. You're, you're doing the I outro. know, I know. I'm just waiting to make sure that you don't have anything to say. Uh, so uh, today we mentioned a lot of links, uh, a lot of games, um, and a lot of back episodes because Yannick has mentioned 2020 was a video games every year for Limipo. So we'll make sure to put all those links into the show notes. And if you were wondering where you can find the show notes, you can find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 151 for our episode 151 which is this episode if you want to go to through our back catalog of 151 episodes and so go look at all the video games episode you can find hey that's the same number as the first generation of pokemon ah that that is true that is true that's i didn't know but yes it seems that we're as whole as the first gen of episode of pokemons but you can find the back catalog of episode at limitlesspossibility.net you can find uh at https now we talk about that in the last episode and also you can find some of our starter uh, episodes on our website uh so we have a starter pack now that is available and up to date on uh the website you can find it Myself on Twitter and the show at Twitter. I should start with the show. My goodness, I'm fucking up this same outro. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself there too at Lukonush. That's L-U-C-C-U-N-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at... Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And we'll see you in two weeks. Happy holidays and see you in two weeks.